stay golden. Hurricane. Hello and welcome back to the Golden Hurricast. We are a weekly podcast covering Golden Hurricane Athletics at the University of Tulsa. I'm Ryan Token. I'm Matt Rectine, and it's been a couple weeks, but we're back. And this, I, I want to say this is like our first megasode of the year, but we've already had a three-hour episode. <laughs> so I don't know if it's possible to be a megasode, but we've got SMU recap. We've got Tulane preview with a guest, JP Gooderham, and we've got basketball preview, both men and women's on top of all the other Tulsa sports. Like We've got a lot to talk about. So why don't we just dive right in? Yeah, no, you're right. That's funny. I was thinking about the, uh, you said Megasode there. I'm pretty sure we had an episode called the Megasode last year, and I'm pretty sure I'm looking it up right now. That might've been with JP again last, last season. (laughs) Let me see, uh, Megas. There it is. The football plus basketball plus soccer Megasode featuring JP from Fear the Wave. And that was two hours and 25 minutes. Uh, yeah, look at that. What what was the other one? The one like right after with Steve Gage. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. The Megasports weekend, another two plus hour one. Man, we thought those were we thought those were long episodes back in the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then we started hitting you guys with uh, with three hour ones. Uh, probably not going to be three hours here. We already did the interview with JP. Uh, held that to a nice and tidy forty minutes. So feeling pretty good with where we're at right now. Um, but yeah, uh, let's get into SMU here. Uh, obviously, bummer loss. It was homecoming. Uh, we broke out the red jerseys and still lost despite the red throwbacks, uh, which sucks. They didn't have a little bit of a change on those red jerseys, Matt. You mentioned the um, they had the numbers on the helmet, which I am almost positive they did not have the the numbers on the helmets last year. Um, but I do think it was gold pants last season too. So I, I can't remember if the only difference was the numbers on there or, or or what. Do you remember from last season? That sounds right to me. I feel like last year, and you know, you and I kind of talked about this ahead of time. I thought it was almost like a last minute. Um, call and that they the uniforms were kind of like you know not finished products 100 yeah. percent. whereas this year i feel like we all kind of suspected or maybe anticipated that they were going to do it again for homecoming and so i feel like we got to see them in their their full yeah. glory uh the one thing and i know it's like i guess a throwback and it's more traditional but i do like names on the jerseys and so yes. not having that oh, yeah, was uh, was probably the one downside that I would give it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I'm the, I feel the same way. I, I did not really think, honestly, if you were to ask me to bet on which one would happen between the red jerseys happening for homecoming or for senior night, I would have bet on senior night. I thought we would go back this year to the classic to you, like blue and gold colors. And I know we wear blue and gold way more than we used to. I mean, there was a stretch of years when we started this podcast that it was like, we actually wore the blue and gold, like blue Jersey, gold pants, gold helmet, uh, like once a season. Right. And that was like, that was homecoming. <laughs> and then we always had like the black and white combos and the all black and the all the white and with the, the black helmet and all these weird, you know, uh, some, some gold and blue other combinations in there. But now it feels like we wear the gold, blue, gold somewhat often, uh, which I suppose makes sense. You're trying to maybe mix yeah. it up for homecoming, but yeah. Well, and I think that it's kind of like part of Rick's influence. Cause what he talked about one of those uh, during one of the fan like engagement committee meetings that when he came in, he was couldn't tell that some yeah. TU athletes were TU athletes because they're wearing like black and red. And he's like, where's the blue and gold? Where, where are our colors? And so sure. 
I feel like he's definitely had an influence in trying to get us back to, you know, what are our three colors? You know, yeah. it's blue, it's gold, and then it's red. And so I am a fan of that, especially like blue gold is just a great color combination. Black, like should not be on our uniforms as the university of Tulsa, not our color. I'm sorry. Like, I don't like the all black uniforms. Um, but like, I'm, I love like a red once a year kind of thing. And then blue gold, all others, which I feel like is kind of a, kind of a nice little, uh, twist. And did you, did they wear the red ones on, on senior night last year? I can't remember. It was homecoming last year. Yeah. They only I did almost once though. Yeah, I wasn't sure if they wore them twice. Oh, good point. No, I don't remember. Don't remember. Pretty sure it was just once. I would if if you were to make me bet on it, I would say once, but I don't know. I, would, I don't know for sure. Okay, three hundred thousand dollars go. <laughs> yeah, well, that's my bet. I would, yeah, uh, but no, I'm with you. I I agree. I I definitely prefer the leaning more heavily into your actual colors. <laughs> I feel like that's kind of a, a foolish thing to even say out loud. Like that's how it should be. Uh, but we had like like we said, there were so many years in there where we didn't really do that. And I know some people like the all blacks specifically, especially the year where we did the black helmet with the red hurricane flag. I thought that actually looked really cool. Um, but I didn't love the black jerseys and the black pants, especially when we start doing like black jerseys with dark blue names on the back that you can't read. And there's <laughs> like a big, uh, weird morass of color back there. Um, but anyway, yeah, no, I prefer, I definitely prefer the, the blue and gold style. They did wear them on homecoming or, or uh, senior night as well. So awesome. Too. We played Temple. Okay. Yeah. Good thing you didn't make me actually bet on this. I know. I would have been $300,000 richer. <laughs> yeah. um, no, the uh, they had the gold helmets with the blue script, uh, the old script. So it has like a white outline. But gotcha. Similar. Um, yeah, because we played Temple and beat the snot out of them. There you go. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, did not beat the snot out of the Mustangs. 45 to 34 was the final score in that one. And it was uh, not really that close for a lot of the game. A big comeback uh, in the fourth quarter made it made it a game. And we had a couple chances down the stretch there to make it an even closer game or, or actually pull off the comeback. Uh, couldn't quite get there. And we'll talk about that later. Um, first time SMU has won in Tulsa since 2009. Look at that. Uh, Tulsa is now number 80 in the SP plus rankings, number 116 in the athletic 131, which they've always, they've been lower in the, in their rankings literally all year, uh, for some reason. I don't know if there's a bias over there or what, um, but uh, I, I, surprisingly, a lot of the teams that we have played are, or maybe unsurprisingly, a lot of the teams we've played this season are low as well. Like Northern Illinois is like one above us or one below us. Uh, Wyoming is not very good, but they're actually like 50 something in the SP plus. That's <laughs> so surprising. Uh, so yeah. Um, yeah, not, not looking great for Tulsa after all this, something I did mention or did see on Twitter after the game. Uh, if you're familiar, Matt, I think you are with the stats of war Twitter account. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Parker from yeah. TCU running that. Awesome. And yeah, he does a really awesome job. Goes, goes really hard on. If you're not following, you like, do it. Oh yeah, no, he, yeah, he does. He does a great job. He's actually like really blown up in the last couple of years too, because people are finally catching on with what he's doing over there. Um, really good, like analytic tweets and, and charts and graphs and things like that. And one of the graphs he does every week for every game is this thing he calls, "Did we really get beat that bad?" And it's a <laughs> it's a big chart with every matchup, at least every matchup that has a play by play, and it's based off the quote unquote net success rate, which measures like efficiency of your team, but it also accounts for down and distance uh, for each play of that game. And surprisingly, you know, when I saw this tweet before I saw where Tulsa wound up on it, 
I would have guessed, yeah, we really did get beat that bad because we were down by 25 points or 24 points in like late in the third quarter, or some, like maybe even early fourth quarter. Uh, and so I would have guessed, yeah, we did. But no, we did not. We, according to his uh, efficiency metric here, Nexus net success rate for week nine, um, we deserve to win that game and we deserve to win it by most. Uh, SMU was in the lucky wins section and actually had the luckiest win of the group. Which means that based on net success, Tulsa should have won this game uh, with how our teams were actually performing. So pretty wild. Did you see that tweet, Matt? I did. Yeah, pretty <laughs> pretty wild. It was just an unfortunate game uh, in several different ways. And it started off with Preston Stone starting things off on play number one uh, of the game. Tanner Mordecai, SMU's actual starting quarterback, uh, was out with a concussion. So... Their their backup, Redshirt Freshman Preston Stone, gets his first career start and first play of his first start uh, ever in college football. Goes for a 75-yard touchdown pass to, to Rasheed Rice. And, man, what a, first, what a way to start off your college career. I mean, honestly, props to him. That is pretty, that is pretty awesome. Um, but, yeah, so he, he plays well. And then, um, unfortunately, he goes down in the, in the second half. Uh, no, yeah, it was like right before halftime. And then third stringer Kevin Jennings comes in, fills in the entire second half, and actually played pretty well. So this was the battle of the backups uh, for the full second half because, unfortunately, Bray, uh, Davis Brin uh, also went down. And so all of a sudden you've got SMU's Kevin Jennings and our Braylon Braxton going uh, toe-to-toe with each other, and they had pretty similar stats. Jennings went 8 for 11 for 91 yards and a touchdown. Braxton was 8 for 14 for 120 yards and two touchdowns. Uh, and it was a weird game, man. 24 to seven at halftime, 45 to 20 near the end of the third quarter. There it is a 25 point uh, deficit going into the final quarter of that game. And it looked like, you know, something we talked about before the game, Matt was just like how close this series always is and has been for like the better part of a decade or over a decade. And there has been, I think two, two instances in the last 10 or 11 years, um, that it's even been more than a one score game in this matchup. We've played every season since I think 2014. And then, you know, it, it, it looks pretty certain that when it's 45 to 20 going into the fourth quarter, that that's probably going to end, you know, that streak's probably over. Uh, somehow we still were able to make this a game near the end, ended up losing by 11. Uh, couldn't keep it within the one score streak there, but uh, that 11 point loss uh, now is the most lopsided loss in a game in this series since 2011, uh, which is pretty wild. 38 to seven Tulsa win in that one. But let me hear your just general thoughts on on the game and what you how you felt about. I know there's a lot to cover here. We got the Davis Brin injury. We've got the the terrible start to this game. Um, we got SMU's Kevin Jennings coming in and playing like a Heisman candidate. But what, what were your overall thoughts about this thing? Yeah. So my initial thought, um, you know, end of first quarter, I was thinking this is going to be a shootout of a game because we you know spotted them 14 points. Our offense was not clicking, which we have seen in years past. Uh, and then we finally got that touchdown that put us on the board, you know, knock it, cut it to a 14 seven. And it looked like it was going to be a high scoring affair, which it ended up doing. But what really killed us is that middle, like second and third quarter for a long period of time, we just like weren't getting any, like we had no points in the second quarter, mm-hmm. you know, go into halftime down 21 to seven uh, and then give, give them a 25 point lead uh, going into the fourth quarter. And so, like we at least were able to score points in the third quarter. Um, part of that led to Brins uh, coming out of the game, you know, rushing for that touchdown, uh, getting hit there. Yeah. Uh, and then Braxton came in and looked 
pretty good in relief, like similar to, I think the Ole Miss yeah. Raxton that we saw like solid. And then he had a really good pass to Stokes um, that thread the uh, needle right there. That was yeah, crazy. Just that was through two defenders straight, straight through the window. I honestly thought we were on defense. I was like, <laughs> I, I don't know what I was thinking. I think it was like right after it was right at the start of the fourth quarter. And so the break like confused me. Uh, and I was like, Oh, nice. What a great interception. And then I saw it was Stokes, but uh, all in all, I mean, we just so our passing defense. We all knew wasn't actually the eighth best passing defense as it had kind of as we had seen, thanks to playing teams like Navy uh, and Temple. And you talked about this in your blog post last week, like those 100 percent skew because what Navy had a single pass and then Temple <laughs> yeah. was just bad at passing. Yep. And so all of a sudden you look like a solid uh, defensive team if you're not adjusting it based on strength of schedule or how much they actually play. So right. um, I think we we got exposed by especially like first play. Just I would be very curious to see like what or hear like what happened. Like we let backup quarterback just come in first play line of scrimmage. Just rip you know? one. <laughs> yeah. And we've seen this so many times. I feel like with these Montgomery teams where we're just not ready for the first play, like yeah. I go back to OK state 2019, oh, literally the game I'm thinking of Chuba That's Hubbard, nice. like yeah. first play of the game. And then Tylan Wallace from like, I think first play of the second half. <laughs> like I, I know that the first drive of the game is always the scripted drive, you know, like that is the one that you can kind of plan how you're going to approach it. And I, I've got to know, like, do these teams just pick long 70 yard bomb touchdown? Just like, that's what you write in against <laughs> to you. Cause it's kind of what we get it's burned. It and it's yeah. like, this has been kind of the story of the year. It's these explosive plays, which I mean, as much as I feel like I was saying early on this year that, okay, it was like one or two big plays that kind of cost us the game. Uh, again, that's what this is, except when it's happening consistently, like you're giving up these one or two big plays costing you 14 points. Like that's not good. So it's just the defense kind of like can clamp down in the back half, but until they settle down or like maybe not even the back half, like, you know, Ole Miss. Yeah. Second half this game, it wasn't until the fourth quarter that we uh, shut them out completely. And at that point, I mean, what is SMU's game plan? Probably just most of it was running down the clock. I mean, you look at that, they had 10 point or 10 minute edge in time of possession. So I look at that more of like, what was SMU trying to do versus what our defense was actually doing. So that's kind of what it seems like. And it just makes me questions, not the right word, but I'll use it anyways, because like Luke Olson, year one, obviously there's going to be some growing pains moving in from a system that you imagine he's familiar with. Like this is This isn't Gillespie's system, right? Like we used this before Gillespie was here. We ran a three, three, five. Yeah. With Bill Young. So, yeah. So like Luke Olson has probably been around this defensive scheme forever. Um, so it's not just like he's inheriting something from the previous defensive coordinator. Um, and it's just, we're not, seeing the same results and it, yeah it, that's what's killing us i definitely get get the concern there and my my only thought on that is like you know you come in it's your first year as a defensive coordinator i'm sure and i'm sure gillespie did a similar thing right i'm sure you want to 
put your own spin on what this three, three, five defense does and how you actually execute it. Right. And maybe that spin that Luke Olson is putting on is just not working. I don't know. I don't know what the defense is. I don't know enough about the intricacies of running a three, three, five scheme and how that actually looks on paper when you, when you break it out on the field. So maybe that's, maybe that's what it is. Maybe Olson try is trying to do something a little bit too creative. That's not working in practice. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, you go back to that first play of the game, the the 75 yard pass to Rashi Rice, and it wasn't just the fact that the we got we got blitz like burned on that route. Yeah, he caught it. He caught it probably like it was a 75 yard touchdown. He probably caught it with you know 15 20 yards to go, and then he broke straight up broke three tackles, and one of them we had him absolutely wrapped up. So it went like this: three tackles after this. First was L.J. Wallace. He was on the coverage there, so I guess. I don't know if he was the initial guy that got burned. He's the safety, so he, you know he's playing safety back there. So he gets burned deep, uh, gets beat deep, um, tries to make the tackle immediately after the catch, gets juked, and has to tr- like fall away while trying to wrap him up. He can't do that. So there's one. He gets past L.J. Wallace. Number two is the damning one, and that is Tyon Davis, who is a great tackler. Like we have talked about him being a good tackler on this team times, many times on this podcast in the past. And Davis is right behind him. I'm sure he was the corner on that play that also got burned. And catches up to him after uh, Rice has to shake off LJ Wallace and straight up has him fully wrapped. Fully wrapped up is just like yanking him around and tries to punch the ball out at the end, like gives, gives it a good swing and then just kind of gives up. Like he still, after the after the punch to get the ball out didn't work, he still had him wrapped up, but he just got away. I don't know. I don't know what happened there, um, but Davis can bring him down. So there's number two. And then the last ditch effort, uh, which I which isn't really on on this guy because he was you know he was basically already in the end zone at this point. But it was Tyree Carlisle, another corner, um, tries to catch up to him at the last minute, d- tries to make a diving tackle and and can't bring him down. So breaks three tackles after the fact, going slowly the last 15 yards because he's juking off all of our players, and uh, still ends up getting in the end zone. So just an awful way to start that game. And like you said, they did you know lock things down. Later, you know, in the especially like second half, they they scored. I think SMU scored on their first two drives of the second half, and then they didn't score again. I, I, I'm pretty sure that's how it went. And that is, you know, that's pretty solid. They were still being aggressive. I know Kevin Jennings. We probably didn't have much <laughs> tape on him being the third string quarterback for SMU. Uh, so maybe that's what it was. We finally figured out how to slow that guy down, um, and we we're able to accommodate for it that way. But man, I mean, even with that, you know, you, you slow him down. Uh, you have sort of figured out Kevin Jennings, but then Braxton, you know, he had played a good game, you know, he, he looked good, but, and he had a couple nice drives. Like you mentioned the, you mentioned the Keelan Stokes pass. That was a beautiful pass, uh, but we stalled out on our last couple. And we had another couple drives in there that felt like we had momentum that we couldn't capitalize on. Uh, but those last two really killed us, which this, I think the second to last one was the horrible missed 44 yard, uh, field goal attempt by Zach Long, which in ESPN's play by play, it says it was Tyler Tiffin, but it was not, it was Zach Long. Yeah, Tiffin um, was just the holder. Yeah. Very weird. I don't know why they have that in there. Um, but man, that field goal, it was so bad. It was so bad. And I feel bad for Zach Long. Cause I think he had made his last five straight and you know, he's, he got off to kind of a rocky start this year, uh, at least compared to last season. And then he kind of, you know, buckled down and he was looking like his old self uh, from last season. And uh, unfortunately, this one was just an absolutely swing and a miss. Basically, it was not even close, like right away. It, I don't even know if it got high enough at any point in the kick to get over the crossbar. Uh, so I don't know if something went bad with the hold or if it was just a just a duffed kick uh, on his side. But that one was that one was ugly. Yeah, I think part 
and I can't really speak to it because I'm pretty sure this occurred while I went up to go grab another beer. Um, but like SMU scored in the third quarter, you know, just a short six yard pass um, to Rushy Rice. And then I went up to go get a drink because I was like, all right, I'll, I don't care about the PAT and all that. And I came back down and they were kicking a PAT and I was like, wow, that took them a while, but it's because <laughs> they had recovered a fumble yeah. like nine seconds of game time later that I just completely missed. So can you explain like what the hell happened there? I'm pre- on that fumble. I'm pretty sure that was Braylon Braxton's first drive as the starter. So Bryn had gone out already. And to clarify, I know you mentioned it already, Matt, but in case anybody miss- missed it, uh, Bryn went out because he had like a 25 yard touchdown run. But as he was getting into the end zone, he like kind of jumped dove in there and got hit in the side, like side back and flipped around like twice. Uh, and that, you know, but he was in the end zone. So he scored. Uh, but that was where he got hurt. So from then on out, uh, Braylon Braxton comes in, and I'm I'm pre- so back to what I was saying. I'm pretty sure this was Braxton's first actual drive as the starter, like, you know, the main quarterback of this game. And first play, he hands it off to Prince. Prince fumbles, and it's returned for a touchdown, uh, which makes it 45 to 20 going into uh, the fourth quarter. Unfortunately, so <laughs> that was not good. Uh, but yeah, I'm pretty sure that's that's how that one went down. Brutal. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in, a, in a game like this where, you know, it's already kind of a toss up on in terms of just like net yards or I can't remember the 100, not net yards. Um, oh, like net success rate. Net success rate. Yeah. Because it was like we were ahead of them, but it's things like turnover luck just kill yep. us. And, you know, you look at it, we had two fumbles that we lost both of them and they just had the one. Yeah. So, um, I mean, things like that really do impact this game because you you take that seven points away you give us the field goal and all of a sudden you're looking at a one point two point game kind of thing like it's all just miscues yeah yeah it sucks and then you know you're in desperation time here you look at how the last final drive went and uh, obviously it didn't go well but it was braxton incomplete to stokes braxton incomplete to stokes braxton sacked by jimmy phillips Braxton and complete the Eps, and that's the end of the game. And it, you know, it's just, you know, it's getting, I'm getting tired of doing this. I feel like we do it every week. Uh, you look at our schedule now, um, we're three and five. We talked about this a little bit with JP already, but we, it's not super easy here at the end. We've got a ranked Tulane team coming to town this week, uh, ranked in every, all three polls, number 19 and the two that matter. Then we have to go on the road to the Liberty Bowl to play Memphis. Never an easy place to play. We get South Florida at home, which, man, that's got to be a win, obviously. I mean, they all pretty much have to be wins at this point. We get we got one buffer zone here. And then we go on the road to Houston to end this thing, uh, to end the season. So you got to win three of those games. And those are not easy games to win. And you look at the games we actually have won this year, none of them are impressive, right? We lose to Wyoming, who I think is actually, you know, they're, they're a semi-decent team. They're like 6-3 and three in the Mountain West uh, so far. Um, so, you know, you lose that one. Okay, that that's a toss-up. Could have gone either way. Uh, Northern Illinois is not a good team. We barely beat them one by three. So that's, that's one of our wins. Our other, our second win is, uh, Jacksonville state, big win, FCS team, whatever. And then we lose Ole Miss. We lose Cincinnati. We get absolutely blown out by Navy on the road. And our third win is at temple, right? That's not an impressive win either. So this is just an extremely like lack of excitement season in terms of what the wins look like. You look at that, you don't have any confidence that we're going to win three of these next four games. I don't know. I, you know, do you, where are you at in terms of, I know we pulled it off last year, similar situation. I think we had to win our last four in a row 
to make a bowl game. Uh, and we did. So, you know, it's not impossible for this team to do it. And they just, you know, they're coming off doing it one year ago. So it's fresh in their heads. So I'm sure they're not, you know, afraid of the challenge, but it's, it's a tough, it's a tough schedule here. Um, how do you think it goes here at the end? Yeah. So like same, pretty much same situation. Like we needed three wins. We needed to be Tulane Temple's SMU at the end of the season to get uh, into that bowl game. And so that fourth win, uh, in a row is the old dominion bowl game. And so it's oh, pretty much the go, exact yeah. situation. Um, we're coming off of, Oh, a loss with needing three more wins to go. But last year you look at the teams that we played, we played at Tulane in their fluky bad year, uh, and barely like miraculously somehow escaped with a win <laughs> yeah. in overtime there. Right. Um, we played temple at home. We've already played temple this year. And we didn't play him as well this year as we did last year. And then we got a, uh, I think the surprise one was the SMU win on the road. And so like you look at the, oh, I guess there's four games left. So if we do another comparison, Cincinnati was the other one, which we almost won. Yeah. But you look at the quality of teams that we played last year to get those three compared to the four teams that we have upcoming. Like the only one that is in the same caliber, um, like easily USF. Memphis, not sure that one. I feel like is a is a toss up, but with this, with how this team is playing, like why should we think that any toss up is going to go our way? Like you look at just how the offense is set up is just pretty reliant on Davis Brin. Davis Brin keeps getting hurt running into the end zone. Like that's happened at Ole Miss. That's happened in this game against SMU. Like if he's not running into the end zone, he's getting sacked because our offensive line can't defend him. And so like we're playing teams that are like Tulane, really good defensive team. Memphis, pretty solid defensively. Probably like I, I don't know this stat off the top of my head, but doesn't really you don't have to be amazing for us. Houston, really good defensively. Memphis so, is bad. Memphis is bad defensively. All right. My my entire experience with memphis defense is when they held t- temple to three points so in that <laughs> game they were good yeah um which is uh, i guess not saying a lot so yeah. you know maybe we get the advantage with memphis not having a good defense maybe that helps us out but like temple overall wasn't a super solid defense but their passing game and their blitzing killed us so like that's kind of the the recipe for our everyone else's success recipe for our failure is like there, like just blitz Davis Brin and we're going to be hampered offensively. And then you can kind of just put up points. Yeah. I'm not saying it's impossible. Um, it is going to be hard. I don't think it's that much different than the end of the season last season though. If we take the last four games of last year, regular season games, you've got Cincinnati, Tulane, Temple, and SMU. Uh, you've got two bad teams in there. Um, Tulane and Temple, although Tulane still had a, a lot of talent on that team. We talked to JP about it. There were a lot of close games in that season last season. A lot of fluky things happened with that year. So I'll call I'll count Temple as the really only bad team on that on the on those last four games. Looking at this season, uh, the last four, as we mentioned, are Tulane, Memphis, South Florida, and Houston. Really, only one really bad team in that group that is South Florida. So we've got the equally bad team uh, that we obviously need to lock up the win there. Um, we've got Tulane in each one, and yeah, Tulane is having a hell of a season this year uh, with a new offensive coordinator and some more pieces in place. 
Um, but you know, I would put Tulane probably in the same caliber as like the SMU from last season, right? That's, that's probably about the same. SMU was, was a solid team. Their record wasn't that great, but, uh, they had a lot of talent on that team. It's Sunny Dykes last year. Um, Memphis, you know, not as good as Cincinnati, uh, but a pretty talented team. Um, I don't know if I'd put them in the same ranking as Tulane from last season either, but you know, I would, if I were going to equate two of them, I would probably do Memphis from this season to Tulane from last season. And then Houston coming into the season was supposed to be like the Cincinnati, right? Uh, kind of a, a dominant team looking forward. And yeah, they had a shaky start, but they're kind of back uh, back rolling once again. So I don't think it's too different. I do agree last season's end stretch was uh, a little bit easier. But, um, you know, I think this season is is definitely tough, uh, you know, and, and I, I don't think it's impossible. I think it, it is possible, plausible to happen. Um, however, it's a kind of a kind of obviously it's an uphill climb as it was last season. So it's going to take a, a stroke of luck here at the end, but not a, not an impossible challenge by any stretch of the phrase. Yeah. And I think the way our team set up this year, you throw this team against the same exact schedule as last year. And we don't win three of those games to go bowling. Like that's just kind of where I'm at. like, we don't beat SMU last year. I don't think we beat Tulane last year. If it's the same exact, uh, if it's like the way our, our team is set up this year. And so I guess it's like more so I, I just, and I'm not saying it's impossible. Like I'm just a pessimist right now. Um, I mean, I feel you. It feels like, yeah, that's definitely how it it feels. It just, it doesn't feel like it. Like the SMU game was just kind of demoralizing. Uh, The game that we were at Cincinnati was demoralizing. The Northern Illinois one we won was somewhat demoralizing in the second half. Um, It's just been, like, I don't know. I, I I mentioned this with JP and that you never know how we're going to play going to a game. And so I can't go into any game with expectations other than to feel like I'm going to be frustrated. <laughs> so yeah. like, I feel like that's all I have. Yeah. No, I mean, you shouldn't. Yeah. I, I think you're feeling the right way. Like that's how it feels with this Tulsa team. It feels like you can't go in without expectations or you are disappointed for the most part but you know that's kind of just how it's been for the last several years and we had a couple ups in there but haven't had a really really great season in uh, in quite a while um i was going to ask you a question about montgomery and if you think he he you know his seat is hot and where you're feeling about him we talked about it a little bit with jp at the end of that interview so uh i think we might just default to uh, to that and you know we'll, we'll have plenty more i'm sure opportunity this season to talk about him uh you know maybe not maybe maybe we won't maybe things will go really well and we'll just be like hell yeah montgomery kicking it in at the end of the year once again uh which will yeah. be a talking point in itself and why can't we just have a normal season and like be good um, the only but thing yeah. that i'll i'll add from on top of what it we talked about in the interview is that I had a chance to read the Tulsa world article um, since those comments. And he's just the quote being like, we've put ourselves in a situation very similar to where we were a year ago at this time. Uh, We know what to do to get ourselves bowl eligible. And it's like, just stop putting yourselves in the same situation. (laughs) Like, yeah, it's hard because on one uh, on one hand, we talked about like a year we go bowling should be a success, but a year where you're looking down the last month of the season and you're like, not sure if we're going to go bowling like that is not a fun success. If still a success. Yeah. It's, it's just tough. You know, I mean, we've talked about it plenty probably, but it just feels yeah. like this team is better than a six win team. And even if we don't, even if we get to six wins, you know, by the skin of our teeth there it just feels like it was, it, you know, it, it, you know, maybe that's a stupid argument. I mean, it can always be better. I know maybe that's just the fan, the fan in me coming out, but it definitely feels like this season has not lived up 
to what I expected. And I know there was the offensive line concerns and I know there was, you know, some losses on the defensive side of the ball and the new DC and all this stuff, but still, uh, all things considered, I thought this would be, you know, I can't remember where we said the floor. was. I think, I think both of us were like the floor of this year is like five and seven or maybe four and eight. I think maybe one of us said five and seven, the other said four and eight. Um, and that's like worst case, you know, you lose literally every game that you think you could feasibly lose. Right. And we're looking at a possibility of that happening here. And not, you know, you got plenty of season to go and hopefully that doesn't happen, obviously, but, uh, that is, you know, you want to be on the other side of that. You want to be at least once every couple of years, like, give me one, you know, give me a season where I can be like, man, we really surpassed where I thought we would be. That hasn't happened in so long, uh, for Tulsa football. So I'm just trying to get back to there every now and then, you know, Cool. Uh, okay, let's um, before we do players of the game and, and then move on here. Just want to cover some injury notes. Uh, Davis Brin, obviously, we talked about him. He got injured. Uh, have not heard any updates on any of these people. The latest thing I saw was an article from John Tranchina at the Tulsa World, and Montgomery was still kind of the you know one. It, when that interview happened, it was pretty soon after the game. And so they hadn't really uh, dissected some of it. But the latest we know is that Davis Brand got hurt and is up in the air, uh, as are everybody else. So nose guard Jaden Simon got hurt early in the second quarter, did not return to the game. Jace Oliver got hurt in the third quarter, also didn't return. Two other guys went down during the game, uh, but they both came back. Bryson Powers and Keelan Stokes went out of the game for part of that game. Both of them came back and played uh, just a little bit later on. So that's the injury status there. Uh, don't have any further information on that right now. And then last thing, penalties. Uh, actually, a really good game for Tulsa in terms of penalties. Seven penalties for 58 yards. SMU had nine penalties for 83 yards. Uh, so, you know, going back to Parker's nut success right there and it, his his graph showing that we played the better game than SMU, it, it pans out in a lot of different ways here. Um, unfortunately, couldn't actually pull away with the win, which is the one that matters. <laughs> so that sucks. But, okay, let's move into players of the game, Matt, unless you have anything else. Uh, and we can get started over there. Okay, so um, – I haven't, man, we, yeah, we missed a week. We probably should say what happened there. Uh, a couple things. One, we were having at first some serious issues with Apple podcasts. Uh, they, the temple episode, we put out our normal time. It was Tuesday or Wednesday morning and it didn't actually come out until Sunday afternoon. <laughs> so five days later did Apple podcast actually publish this thing. And that was not on us. That was like, it was published. I could see it in the, like the public feed that these podcast players use to read from. And Spotify had no problem uh, publishing it. And uh, a third-party Apple Podcast player called Overcast uh, had no problem somehow publishing that. But Apple Podcast, the app itself, uh, had had serious trouble with it. So we went into the week unsure of what the status was there. And then I was traveling in Tulsa all week uh, for the SMU game. And we were doing stuff pretty much every day of that week and working and all of this. So uh, did not have time to record during the season. So that was why we didn't have the episode for the homecoming game. Um, but yeah. Uh, my point, the reason I got there was because players of the game, usually we switch off on who starts here, but I have no idea who did the last one. So have any preference, Matt? Um, happy to start yeah. or, uh, or you no, I was just going to say like, I have no idea. I didn't listen to our latest episode cause it wasn't on Apple podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Yeah. You should see the, uh, not you, Matt, but you, the listener should see the, the listen numbers, uh, on this, on that last episode compared to literally every other episode for the last like four seasons. So uh, it is much more like a season one episode, I will say, compared to uh, the <laughs> the more recent ones. Uh, that's funny. Okay. Uh, season one basketball episode. Yes, for sure. Yeah, no doubt. Football is always more listens than basketball, guys. That's just, just how it goes. Keep listening during basketball season, especially this year. It's going to be fun. Stick around. It's going to be a hurricane party. Hurricane party. Conkle time. All right. Uh, well, I'll start with offense, uh, unless you have a, unless you are, are just dying to start. Okay. 
So I went with Keelan Stokes. Um, you know, he had, another, he had another amazing game. Last game, he, you know, became Tulsa's all-time leading receiver in, in receiving yards, and he followed that up with an even better game than the Temple game. And that was five catches, 122 yards, and a touchdown, including that pass we both talked about a little bit already, 50-yarder from Braylon Braxton, which was just beautiful. Uh, and that, you know, got us a little bit back more into this game once again. And looked really good. I coming into the only thing I'll I'll, I'll let you go first, and then I've got a I've got a follow up thing. So uh, how about you take it over here? Yeah. Um. For the sake of just being more fun and not picking the same Keelan Stokes pick, uh, I'm gonna pick. Drum roll. Jordan Ford, actually. Hey, first one uh, for him, I believe yeah, this year. Jordan Ford. So he didn't put up the same, you know, quite the same numbers as Denaric Prince. Um, Ford had 78 to Prince's 86, pretty close, all things considered, but Ford did 78 yards on eight attempts compared to 86 yeah. yards on 19 for Prince. So, um, you know, you know, you may remember both Prince and Ford had like 40, I think Ford's was 48 Prince's was 42 yard runs, uh, both like to the left hash and then just short of the end zone um but Ford just putting up 9.8 yards per carry uh just really fun and i i feel like it's kind of jordan ford in his current role like is way more suited to being the second back i think than the primary back as we had yeah going or you know agree through the first part of the season so you have prince put him in he's the main main guy you know he's your workhorse and then ford comes in just a little bit of lightning here Mm. and there and i mean it worked out amazingly i mean we had 152 yards between just the two of them so i amazingly it worked out really well so yeah i think that's a good call i you know i i agree when when ford was kind of the lead back to start the year before we had prince back and obviously we still don't have watkins back and we didn't know what steven anderson was going to be like it seemed like ford might be the guy to start things off and he's way smaller right he is way smaller than Eric prince and i probably most of our other running backs and it just looked like he didn't have the like physical ability to be the every down guy, like you're saying. And so, I don't know. I started to kind of write him off a little bit in my head was just, it just didn't feel like he was the guy. Um, but now, like you're saying, coming in as the, the second guy to mix it up when you've got Prince or Anderson, right. Being the main, like big time, like big back back there with some more power mix Ford in there. Uh, you get, you get some real f- speed and quickness uh, from him. So I think it's a nice uh, counterpoint. And, uh, to follow that up, I am glad I went you. I let you uh, go before I had this little follow-up here because it ties in really well. Um, I went into this game, and you can read it in the blog post on our website, thinking that Daenerys Prince would be the offensive player of the game. I thought he was going to have – like he just ripped off against Temple, right? He went off against those guys. And SMU came in number 120 in rushing defense in the country and consistently struggles to defend the run, as do we. Um so I, if you were to ask me before the game who I thought it would be, I would have absolutely said Eric Prince. Unfortunately, he didn't have that great of a game. Uh, just four and a half yards per carry, like he mentioned, Matt. Um, pretty much outperformed by Jordan Ford, even with Ford getting like less than half the number of carries he did. Uh, Ford also scored that. Uh, he had a touchdown on, on, a, on a catch, uh, which is pretty sweet. So, yeah, just an interesting note. I, I still think, obviously, I love Eric Prince. I think he's, he, he's amazing. Uh, he just didn't have as, as good of a game as I thought he might. Um, okay, so you went second on offense, so how about you kick us off on D? Um, okay, let me, this, this is harder. Um, yeah, so on the defensive side of the ball, uh, I'm going to go John Michael Terry. I think just as far as like 
who are top linebackers in my mind are, um, you know, Justin Wright and John Michael Terry. Like, I feel like it's been the two of them um, kind of just going back and forth between total tackles. But John Michael Terry, I feel like he's just more of a, um, I don't want to say special teams defender, but like if there's a turnover or something like that, I feel like he is always just involved in the play. Totally. His head is constantly on a swivel. He's, he has forced fumbles. He is recovering fumbles. And that's what he did this game. He had nine tackles, pretty confident that he recovered that fumble, um, that I believe Brian Johnson, uh, forced. Um, and so I feel like he's, he's just kind of all over the place and I feel like there's a good reason like he was named a captain this year and yeah. this is kind of the reason is he is just constantly aware of what's going on on his side of the ball and so like if there's a ball on the ground there's a good chance that John Michael Terry if he doesn't come up with it he's going to be in the area yeah. and I think that's really cool and we saw that on display this week yeah and good call out on him being a team captain this year I remember when we were doing the football like season preview it was kind of a point of note that he was, you know, we all knew he was talented, came from OU, all this stuff. Um, but he got, he, his first year was last year and he was hurt a lot of that year last season. And so for him to have limited time on the actual playing field last season, and then to come be named, you know, they're voted by the team members, right? They named the captains. And so for him to, you know, come and be named an actual, a captain with the rest of these guys who have been around for forever, like Davis Brennan and Darren Ray and, you know, Justin Wright, guys like this, Keelan Stokes, uh, that was a, that was a big call out, right? It made you think, okay, you know, this guy obviously must be for real that he's got the respect of the team after not even doing that much on the field last year. And, uh, certainly is living up to it. I, I totally agree. I think he has been a, a big surprise in a positive way on the defensive side of the ball. Um, for mine, I, you know, I feel like you got to go Bryson powers. He's just had, he just had the big numbers in this game, 11 tackles four solo helped out on a tackle for loss. And he also has been a, a pretty consistent, really solid player on that defensive side. And so I'm going to give it to him. The other, the other call out I will give is Justin Wright. He had a, he had a good game as well. And the thing I wanted to mention here was I was out getting nachos or a beer or something. And I saw Justin Wright's dad out in the line there. So we were talking for a, for a minute and uh, apparently he had a bunch of NFL scouts there and uh, that was pretty cool. He had a, he had a pretty solid game for it. Um, and I think that's, you know, it, it's, it's interesting though. I don't know. I haven't looked into like, what the NFL scouts are saying about any Tulsa players really this year. Um, so I don't know where he actually stands. The fact that he had a bunch of NFL scouts there does not surprise me uh, at all. Cause you know, he's been a consistent player for, for many years now for our team. Uh, but like you're saying, Matt, John Michael Terry kind of looks like more of the star of this defense, at least on the linebacker side of things. He's always around when there's a big play. And that's what, that's what propelled Zayvon Collins into the first round. He was uh, among other things, also always the big play guy, always. And, that gets the that gets people's attention, you know, whether that's deserved or not. And I think it is. So I'd be surprised if if they both end up getting drafted, uh, who goes higher? And I wouldn't be that surprised if it's Terry. Although I obviously love Justin Wright. Okay, uh, special teams. I will kick us off. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> and it was uh, once again a very mediocre blah game from special teams. Nobody played particularly great Zach Long we already talked about missed that horrible 44 yarder that never came close he also had a field goal attempt blocked which we didn't mention during the recap so there you go there's another one um you know Lachlan Wilson does what he normally does he punted a lot and most of them were pretty good uh but nothing you know we didn't do anything spectacular anywhere on the special special team side of the ball um 
Matt is holding up a piece of paper, <laughs> a piece of paper on the camera here that says special teams strike. So I I'm with you, man. I got nothing positive to say about special teams. Once again, let me, let me check the latest SP plus rankings and see where we're at on, in special teams. Tulsa is, Oh man, we have dropped considerably. I remember when we started this season, special teams was like in the sixties or seventies, you know, mediocre, worse than average, but not like really bad. Yeah. Because Lachlan and Long were both named to like preseason yeah. watch lists. Yeah, I know. Uh, and, you know, those guys, you know, they do okay. They're, neither of them are doing horrible. But, like, that ranking accommodates for, like, coverage and return distance and all this stuff, right? And we are down to 102nd uh, in the country. So we have – I mean, that's how it feels like it's gone. Uh, but it's interesting to see that in the SP Plus rankings as well. The defense, while I'm looking at this, has also dropped a lot. They, they have never been that good. Uh, this season in SP, SP plus rankings, but we're now also in the hundreds on defense. So two of the three phases here, we've got a bottom 30 uh, caliber unit out there in, in defense and special teams. The offense is number 46. So holding their own on the offensive side of the ball. Cool. Okay. Uh, let's wrap it up on the SMU homecoming recap. We didn't really talk about the tailgate. Uh, we didn't go to the tailgate because we were at the chili cookoff for the TU tailgaters, uh, which was actually very fun. And while they are going to be on Chapman Commons, for the last game of this season and then the rest of forever, I think, like going forward, they'll be on the main area. This year, they were at the Wesley Foundation, which was at 4th and Florence. So a little bit off the beaten path compared to Chapman Commons. But we were out there. We got to be guest judges for the for the TU Tailgaters and their chili cook-off. And that was extremely fun. We had a blast out there. Met a bunch of really cool people. Learned. Did not know this. Uh, TU Tailgaters. Also, by the way, uh, Tailgaters is T-A-I-L-G-A-T-O-R-S, like alligator. That's not how you spell your traditional tailgater. Uh, but that is their name. So TU Tailgaters, check them out on Facebook and Twitter if you want to. Um, they have that organization. We learned this when we were there. Has been around for 42 years. And all 42 of those years, except for COVID and the year after, um, they have had this tailgate every game. Uh, it's pretty wild. So got to meet some really cool people there. Uh, eat some really tasty chili. Uh, make some judging recommendations that did not align with the fan favorite <laughs> with the fan favorites uh, uh, their own judging style. Um, but we had a blast out there, so uh, that's why we didn't really talk about the tailgate at all. Um, assume the plain white tees were fine and fun. Uh, I heard it was absolutely packed over there, uh, but did not actually get to see it myself. Um, so there you have it. Okay, on to uh, we'll we'll do some around the American real quick. Let me scroll through this. I don't think I got to watch any of these games being on the road for most of this. Uh, yeah, I did not. So I'll just, I'll mostly just speed through um, what happened here. So uh, we had one game on Friday that was East Carolina versus BYU. That is an extremely intriguing matchup. Both like pretty interesting teams this year. BYU, you know, very highly rated preseason, um, have not lived up to those expectations. ECU got them on the road in Utah in Provo, 27 to 24, really close game. Uh, ECU's kicker hit a 33-yard field goal as time expired to win that one. BYU is now four and five, which is not what people thought they would be this season. ECU improves to six and three. So after kind of a rocky start to the year, uh, they are once again back on track uh, where they want to be. Um, then we've got three games on Saturday, all uh, intra-conference games, and that starts off with UCF beating Cincinnati 25 to 21 in Orlando, which now leads to Cincy dropping out of the rankings and UCF joining them. So UCF is now number 25 in all three polls, uh, the college football playoff poll, which came out today as of time of recording and the AP and coaches poll as well. They are ranked number 25 there and they are six and two Cincinnati six and two as well, but they have fallen out of the polls after that loss. Um, the thing about this one, UCF's quarterback, uh, John Rice Plumley went out with a concussion near halftime. So the whole second half, 
Um, their backup quarterback, Mikey Keene, who uh, played a good chunk of the season last season as well, uh, comes in and leads the Knights to a win against a pretty stout Cincy defense. So uh, pretty intriguing. Uh, that Cincy defense that I just said was stout gave up over 500 yards of total offense in this one. And the Bearcats only had 300 yards of offense themselves. So they got they got smoked in terms of total yardage. Uh, but there you have it. So UCF wins that one, is now ranked in all the polls because of it. Moving on, Houston beat uh, South Florida 42-27 to in Houston. So home game for the Cougars. Don't have much to say about this one other than another quarterback mix-up here. Um, South Florida's quarterback, uh, Gary Bohannon, uh, is out for the year. I think that happened last game. And so their backup, Trey Marsh, got the start. Uh, he didn't play terribly, but obviously, you know, South Florida – they just don't have the talent to live up with the talent that Houston has, and that's how it went. It was actually a pretty tight game. Uh, Houston, uh, I think, had like 14 unanswered points in the second quarter and then just basically didn't give that up. But aside from that second quarter, um, pretty tight uh, for the whole game, even with the starting quarterback for the Bulls not being in there. So Houston now 5-3. and three. South Florida now falls to 1-7. and seven. Not great. And then the last one for this week, uh, another uh, kind of weird game. Navy beat Temple. 27 to 20 in overtime. So Temple gets Navy to overtime. I mean, we have been the outlier for Navy games. They have like played close or lost to everybody else and beat us by 35 or whatever the final score of that one was. Uh, this was in Annapolis and almost dropped it to Temple. Um, Navy quarterback Xavier Arline scored on a 23 yard run in overtime to give them the lead. And then in Temple's following possession to try to tie it back up and send it to a second overtime, they picked off EJ Warner in the end zone. Uh, to end that game. Navy attempted just two passes. I saw both were incomplete. So <laughs> it completed zero passes in this, in this entire game as, as Navy does. Um, and then ended up losing it or ended up winning it. Obviously uh, Navy falls or rises to three and five temple falls to two and six. And that will do it for around the American this week. Uh, and we only have one more football related thing. And it's the highlight highlight of this episode, which is looking forward, always more fun than looking back at a loss so let's move forward to our two-lane preview. We bring in J.P. Gooderham, uh, formerly of Fear the Wave, but he stepped away from that last year, but it was great catching back up with him, and uh, he's still following two-lane hardcore. So got some really, really good stuff uh, from that interview for you, and we'll kick you over there now. All right, we are back, and we're here with J.P. Gooderham. That is J.P. Gooderham of Fear the Wave fame to you. He is not doing the podcast anymore, but obviously still one of the best sources for Tulane sports news out there. Uh, this is, if I counted correctly, the third time we've had J.P. on the show, and we are really excited to have him back. J.P., what's new? How you been? Guys, it is so good to see both of you. Thank you for the the kind lead-in, Ryan. You know, I'm, now I'm not J.P. from Fear the Wave. I'm just J.P. <laughs> The guy who got to see his <laughs> Tulane Green Wave get ranked moments ago, ago in the first college football playoff rankings they've ever been featured in. And, you know, we have a, a trip to Tulsa coming up and nothing bad has ever happened to Tulane on a trip to Tulsa. So feeling definitely having some feelings right now. That's where I'm coming in from in my headspace. Yeah, man. Well, first, big congrats on the CFP ranking. I saw that. I saw the number nine. It's 19 across all three polls, right? It's consistent across the board there, number you know 19? What? I would say yes. Number 21 in the coaches poll. And uh, uh, hot okay. take here, I think we need to abolish the coaches poll <laughs> and stop talking about it as a college football community. But uh, number 19 in the AP and number 19 in the CFP now. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I am with you on getting rid of the coaches poll. It doesn't make much sense uh, to me these days. 
Um, but uh, first thing on, on Fear the Wave real quick, um, with you, do, do you miss doing it, uh, being there every week doing that thing? Or is it more fun to just kind of be able to step back and be a, be a normal Tulane fan now? How are you feeling about all that? No, never stop, guys. <laughs> Literally never stop. <laughs> uh, you, know what the, you know what the worst scenario is if you ever uh, retire from doing this is that as soon as you retire, your team puts together a dream season after you covered them. <laughs> I kid you not. Tulane could win. They're predicted right now by ESPN FBI to, to win about 10 games this year. In my four years at Tulane, where I covered the green wave in front of like 11 people, Tulane won nine games over four years. Uh, and I leave Rough. and here's where we are. So, you know, on that level, I, I obviously miss, you know, a lot of uh, being part of that community in the way of being on Twitter and doing the podcast and some of those things. Uh, so I definitely absolutely miss that part. But I will say that the guys who are running Fear the Wave now, a uh, huge shout out to Kelly, Jimmy Ordno, and uh, and Jake. They're doing an awesome job and have kind of built the vision around uh, not just doing some great content like we did before, but more podcasting, uh, more blog posts, doing some stuff with NIL. So super excited about what they're building. Yeah, I've, I've been following along with uh, the podcast and just seeing what you guys are putting out over there. And yeah, I knew about the NIL stuff that I think that all kicked off last year. That seems like that's going going pretty solidly. Uh, and then I've been seeing, I, I think it's Jimmy maybe does all the, um, he, one of them has an interview like every week with two or three uh, Tulane athletes, which I think is really cool. So sounds like that's going great. Yeah, they're they're cooking and they're, they're doing their own awards and having like former Tulane greats, like great players. Uh, they had Tommy Bowden. Uh, the coach who took Tulane to a perfect season in 1998. He did some of those announcements. So yeah, if uh, for any Tulsa fans, Fear the Wave is still going strong. Make sure to check out what those guys are doing because they are they are the source when it comes to Tulane right now. <laughs> Very nice. Um, so you mentioned the you know insane season that Tulane is off to right now. Number 19 and the coaches and the or coaches, the, the CFP and the AP poll. Uh, off to a really hot start, 7-1, and one, undefeated in conference, ranked in, all, uh, ranked in every poll right now. Um, and did you see this coming at all after, after last season? I know last season was rock, Rocky It was two and 10, uh, up and down. You know, I think there was a lot of optimism going into the season that faded out kind of quick. Uh, is, was this a total shock to you guys or, or how are you feeling about this season? It's, it's actually very strange how it doesn't feel that shocking. Like, and I, I think that's a testament to what Willie Fritz has done. You know, he's now made basically a bull game every season for his past five years, except for one where the team goes two and 10 last year. And it was such a strange, wonky two and 10 season, right? For, for folks who, you know, follow Tulane a little bit, it begins with going to top five Oklahoma and putting them on upset alert. And there was so much excitement. And I've said this to Ryan a bunch of times because I know that uh, Ryan and probably a lot of other Tulsa faithful went to, to Ole Miss this year. I was like, I need to go to Ole Miss. It was two games after the Oklahoma game because this is going to be the time that Tulane is going to do something special. This is a team, this is last year, this is a team that could go to somewhere like Ole Miss. They have Michael Pratt. They have these offensive weapons. They have some really good stuff going on on defense. They're going to put it together this year. And not only did they not put it together, but it was a real backslide from what we've seen during the Fritz era. And you know, while that is very negative on the surface, I don't think you find a lot of moral victories, no matter which program you are at this level, when you're putting up a 2-10 record. But what was interesting was they played a bunch of close games, right? They lose an overtime at home to Tulsa last year. Uh, they lost by one score to UCF in what was a winnable game. They blew out USF out of nowhere for their only FBS win. And I think the strongest thing that maybe we didn't have a, an appreciation for 
was the defense. We had a, a new defensive coordinator, Chris Hampton, going into last season. The defense was not very good those first six games. That was the reality. But through that back half of the season, the defense was getting better and better and better. And you look at this year, Tulane wasn't expected to be particularly good. I think they were seventh or eighth in the the coaches poll uh, before the season. And, and yet, you know, the defense has now been a top 50 unit. I think it's one of the biggest overperformances versus preseason expectations for any unit at any team in college football this year. And so if nice. you look at it from that dimension, it makes a lot more sense that you have a, a defensive coordinator who really found his footing. He used that energy and brought it into this year, and you had enough depth to really start to do something special in the defensive side of the ball. So um, it is surprising. You know, this is the best season Tulane has had since 1998 when they finished in the top 10 in the AP poll, and it's exciting. This is the most excited I've seen the fan base in my time as a Green Wave fan, for sure. Quick sidebar, was the which season was that undefeated season? That was 1998. Okay, that was 98. That was that year. All right, very cool. Yeah. Um, okay. One more, one more slide back onto last season, uh, just to get some context around that. I know hurricane Ida was happening around there and I know that, you know, displaced Tulane for a while. We're living, I can't remember where you were playing. It was like UAB stadium or, or something like that. That's right. Um, oh, nice. Okay. Uh, do, how much of an impact do you think the hurricane legitimately had on the year, like for, for the rest of the year? Um, or do you think that was overblown, uh, in terms of people blaming it on the hurricane? It wasn't good. You know, it, it definitely <laughs> yeah. was a tough situation. And in, in even just purely from the lens of, of college football, spending that amount of time somewhere else, right? I mean, it was crazy. I remember, you don't think about this stuff, or at least I don't think about this stuff, of what does it take to move an operation like a college football team overnight and then set up shop at a completely different university? Fritz talked about how they had to find a special hotel because a lot of players have pets. And they had to find a hotel that would accept not just dogs and cats, but tarantulas and snakes. Yeah. And like, that's not a normal thing that I think as a head of a football team you're thinking about. I do think it's certainly a factor that kind of maybe pushed Tulane where it was hard to get that footing last year. And it certainly could be a factor because Tulane wasn't getting blown out in a lot of those games. They were playing a lot of close games and that year they were losing them. They weren't winning them. But I think the bigger factor and the single biggest factor, in my opinion, was that you know, we had a, a fantastic offensive coordinator in the two preceding years, and that was Will Hall, who's now a, a successful head coach at Southern Miss. That is a program that is turning around quickly, and I think that speaks to what Hall did, not only at Tulane, but now what he's doing in Hattiesburg. The choice that we made, which was bringing in Chip Long last year, I think that was not an effective fit for kind of fitting the talent of Tulane. That was someone who had been a successful coordinator at, at Notre Dame and other places, but you just never felt that fit between the scheme and the personnel. And I think if you fast forward to this year, you know, one of the things I like the most is that Tulane is getting off to a lot of hot starts because the scripted stuff that they're doing at the beginning of the game, it's consistently been very effective. Mm -hmm. And I think it's putting guys like Michael Pratt. I mean, a lot of the personnel is really similar to what we've seen from prior years. But you're now in a position where that talent can execute a lot better. And, you know, we're kind of using what their strengths are, I think, in a more effective way. So, you know, I think, you know, like a lot of things in life, when you have a big failure, it's multidimensional. It's a number of things going wrong where they could have gone right. And I agree with Ryan. You know, that was a tough one. But I think there's some other factors there. And I think Fritz did a really nice job rebounding and getting the team focused for this year. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that makes total sense, and obviously he's he's done an incredible job uh, on the rebound for this season. But you you mentioned Will Hall and Southern Miss, so I got to ask you a question about that real quick. How much is that loss, this the Southern Miss loss, killing Tulane fans right now? Uh, had you not dropped that one, it'd be an undefeated eight and zero sitting here right now. 
It's, it's, you know, I, I think maybe this is telling in saying that I, I do think about it every once in a while of, and, and for folks who don't know, it was a 27 to 24 home loss to your former offensive coordinator. And, you know, it was a weird game. Uh, there was a pick six. There was uh, another really bad kind of three and out where Tulane set up Southern Miss on a, a very easy field position. And they've had struggles at off- on offense. They have a great defense this year. And if you look at, for instance, I always look at the Bill Conley stuff. It was like a 48-52 game where it was a coin flip and it gotcha. didn't go Tulane's way. And so Tulane now there is seven and one. They have one of the best wins of any team in the country right now. Yeah. Fundamentally, it's one of the only three road wins over a top 15 team that anyone in the country has. And that's what Tulane has from the 17 to, to seven win over Kansas State. And so I think that when I really think about it, though, what does it change, Right. Would Tulane seriously be in the conversation around the playoff this year? I don't think so. It took Cincinnati multiple seasons stringing that together to be able to get there. And so the way I look at it, and maybe this is half glass full, every goal Tulane should have is in front of them. And those goals are, you know, winning the conference championship, making a new year six bowl and going to the first major bowl game for this, this team in 80 years. But fundamentally, and this is what the team talks about, that can't happen unless you find a way to get through Tulsa. It is a one and O type environment. And I think that's what Fritz has done a really good job is insulating the team. I mean, they are so consistent of, we do not care about the top 25. We don't care about the playoff rankings. And that's the mindset you have to have if you're an underdog team trying to do this. Awesome. Let's get into some offensive stuff real quick. You mentioned briefly uh, some of the background on Chip Long last year and then first year OC Jim Svoboda. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? Why, why do you think the chip long, uh, experiment went so poorly last year and, um, go into a little more depth on, uh, what's what brings to the table and how he runs that offense? Yeah. You know, I think there's a few things that, that jump out this year. And, and one is just, if you look, there are seven or eight different receivers who have recorded at least one touchdown for Tulane this year. We're spreading the ball out a lot more. Uh, a big testament of that is that I think Michael Pratt, who is a longtime AEC name at this point. It's kind of crazy how fast time flies. We were like, wow, he's a veteran guy uh, with how long he has been at the helm of Tulane's offense, now under his third offensive coordinator. But he's playing his best football right now. And I think a lot of what I look at when I look at the Tulane offense is how much are you putting Pratt in a position where he can play a clean game, right? And I think some of the criticisms or critiques that people would have given Pratt early, some of his tendencies to try to extend plays with his feet, some of the, you know, kind of putting himself in a position where he was going to take a big shot. He played a lot of the early part of his career injured at some level. He is playing his cleanest football right now. He's not turning the ball over. Uh, He's not really taking those hits that we used to see. And I think a big piece of that that I was getting to is that we're in an offense where they're, they're spreading the football out, which is great. And there's a lot of receivers who are are really competent, right? So I think if you look at a guy like Fat Watts, Fat Watts has not had that many games. Amazing name, by the way. I know. All name (laughs) team, right? And Uh, Deuce, right? Deuce is his brother. They're twins. Yeah, Yeah, out of uh, Pebble, Mississippi. That's uh, that's Fat Watts and Deuce Watts. And and amazing. When you look at Fat's game, if you looked at him by the numbers, you would look and say, okay, this is a receiver who's had three or four receptions per game. But my gosh, like. They're great receptions. Like he against ECU, he straight up mossed a guy. Like he had a Pirates receiver and he was like holding him down like he was his little brother giving him a noogie and he's got (laughs) the football on him. It's sick. It's so great. And what I'm getting to though is that you have a lot of receivers there who 
I think they can be cleaner. I think when we look at the Memphis game that we just had, there were some drops and there were definitely some plays that those receivers went back, but there are a lot of options that Pratt is comfortable with. And then if you look then into the backfield, you have a number of backs who are, are, are hyper competent, but the fundamental reality is the best player on the field is Tajay Spears. Yeah. And you know, when Tulane starts to take over games, there's always a moment. And that's where we kind of know we're, we're going to win, which is like, you'll be in the second quarter and Spears you know, could have been brought down in the backfield for a four-yard loss, and he turns into a 70-yard game. And it just changes the dynamic of a game so much. So um, huge credit to the offensive coordinator. I think we're utilizing that talent much more effectively than we have in the past. Yeah, awesome stuff. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit, Michael Pratt there. Uh, you brought him up, so we'll we'll get into him. He is having, like you said, it seems like playing his best football of his career right now, completing 68% of his passes so far, uh, just 58% last season, so a big jump there. Um, 12 interception or 12 touchdowns to three interceptions. What do you think has been, and you mentioned some protection benefits that, that weren't really there last year. Has that been the biggest difference for him in, in terms of making that jump or, uh, what do you think that is? And it looks like Matt, uh, noted also that, uh, moved from the middle of the pack in the AAC last year to third in efficiency this year, uh, which is pretty cool. Oh, that's a great stat. Look at Matt as a pro. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I think it makes sense, right? He has now evolved from being someone who is showing flashes to where he has the real consistency. And that's the difference. We always knew Pratt was the guy. Mm -hmm. uh, from when he took over during the Southern Miss game three years ago to now, you know, that has been really clear. And I think that, you know, a big piece, I, I look at the Memphis game, Tulane got up to a 35 to zero lead against Memphis by halftime. Yeah, that was that. crazy, right? <laughs> yeah. And it got close. You know, if you look at the final score, Tulane still beat the spread, I will note, but that was the best half of football Tulane has played this century. Straight up, like that was nice. dominant in every phase of the game on offense, on defense, on special teams. They were plus four in turnovers. They wrecked Memphis. And a big piece of that, though, was that Proud was just so dang confident at this point in what he's doing. And you start to see them do things that we weren't doing under Chip Long, right? A good example is throwing on, you know, throwing on a down that isn't a passing down, right? Taking those shots early and they don't always pay off. You can look at the second half where things start started to get close where Tulane was actually, they didn't go anchor down right away. They were still throwing when they came back out after halftime. Unfortunately, it led to a couple of three and outs that allowed Memphis to get back in that game, get some momentum, and then things started to swing. But I think there's just a lot of confidence that, you know, you can send Pratt out there and he's going to make something happen. And I think that it's weird to say this as a, a testament to Pratt, but the game that he did not play, Tulane beat Houston on the road with a third yeah. string quarterback. And, and that's a team that's trying to make it to the conference championship in Houston. They're a quality club this year. But I think what that speaks to is Pratt doesn't have to do everything, every play. And that's a difference from maybe how he might have felt, I think, in the offense last year or in years past. You said he's always been, you know, Tulane fans always knew he was the guy. Uh, was there ever a doubt? You know, I'm sure there was a little bit. But was there any, like, realistic doubt in people's mind that he was the guy last season uh, in the midst of all the, you know, drama that was happening there and then... You know, I don't know if Kai Horton or was, was that the, was it Horton that came in against Houston? Yes. This year? Well, okay. Actually fun story. Justin Ibietta, oh, who was the right. second string quarterback, yeah. uh, got to come out and he was going to start. He had taken the first team reps all week. He comes out against Houston and Ibietta puts together. It was a dynamite first drive. He was moving yeah. the ball down the field. He was hitting his marks on passes. His timing looked great. His rhythm looked great. He gets to around the five yard line and Ibietta, uh, He's running toward the hash marks and he tries to extend a play, takes a huge shot on the shoulder from like the cornerback or whoever it was on Houston. 
out of the game immediately. Yeah. And I'm like, man, what a two lane scenario <laughs> that your second string quarterback looks yeah. great on the road on ESPN during a primetime game and ends up in a situation where unfortunately he needed to get uh, surgery. But uh, Kai Horton, and you're exactly right, Ryan, he comes out of the woodwork out of Carthage, Texas. He won every game he played in high school in the state of Texas, <laughs> and he added another one. So, you know, he's he's got a little green wave legend to him now. Nice. Yeah. So like looking at Pratt last year, was there ever a risk of him? Uh, do you think actually losing that job or do you think he had it locked up and everybody knew it was just kind of a, a wild season and uh, no no worries on Pratt there? I think everyone knew that, you know, and, and I'm talking like you probably could go find the craziest of your crazies on the message board and find something else. I mean, I think the yeah. only real question was, and I'm not saying this was ever a consideration or that we ever reported this or something like that. But when we talk about fan speculation, you know, does he stay around at this point, right? The the transfer right. strategy of college football, the nature of NIL, there's all these different things out there. And I'm not saying anything specifically about Pratt's situation, but when you're changing offensive coordinators and you have a two and 10 team and you have a quarterback who has shown a lot of promise, you know, I am excited that it never was a question for us, right? He's bought in, uh, he comes back into Fritz's system and now, you know, he's putting together one of the best seasons, you know, we've seen from a two lane quarterback. So, um, you know, it's a huge testament. Everyone, you know, talks about Pratt and really sings his praises as a leader and, and the character that he has. So it's exciting to have him be part of this program. Yeah, very cool. So I haven't gotten to watch uh, much actual two-lane football like live on TV yet this year, but looking at uh, the numbers, it looks like Fritz is, um, you know, back to his, what I feel like is his, you know, quote-unquote preferred style, which is leaning pretty heavily on the run game. And I remember when he came in, that was that was a pretty big deal for him too. Uh and it looks like that's the case this year, even with Pratt, you know, being as, as good as he's been. Is that just Fritz being who he is and, and leaning on that run game? Or why do you think you lean so heavily on the run? Yeah, I, I think it is. You know, it one thing that when Fritz came in, it's kind of funny because no one asks, not that I, I do podcasts anymore, but I can think about like last year, you, you started to see people kind of shift in the way they thought about Tulane's offense because early on, people would often ask, is it a triple option offense, right? Because yeah, that's right. what kind of Fritz came from at Georgia Southern. And in the early years, it sort of, you know, had those elements because Tulane really struggled in the first three or four years of Coach Fritz's tenure to get a quarterback who had real credible passing ability. Mm -hmm. And it was like every couple of years, they would get somebody who incrementally was better. But Pratt feels like the first realization of that. But I think it comes back to the fact that, you know, Fritz has a philosophy right? Where by having the quarterback be a runner, you are adding another person on the field that, that the defense has to defend, right? That is the fundamental numbers game of college football that Fritz believes in when you ask him about it is you want the defense to defend against every player. Mm -hmm. And if you're just handing the ball off, you're out of the game, right? And so he wants to, you want to dress some plays up, right? You want to give them some looks that's going to confuse the defense, whether it's, you know, doing something crazy and going out of flex bone uh, once you get you know on the goal line or whatever it might be. So there's a lot that he tries to work with there. And so I think that that is a big piece of it is just having the running game be more central uh, is pretty exciting. So, yeah, I, I think that's a fair assessment and it's been a big area of progress for this team. Yeah, it makes sense. I was thinking while you were talking, I was thinking back, uh, I was trying to remember that guy's name who was the quarterback several, several years ago. I don't think he was the one right before Pratt, but he had sloth in his Twitter handle. That's, that's all I remember about him. Uh, but that guy was electric. I, I, I can't remember if he came from LSU 
or something somewhere different. But uh, man, I remember he lit us up pretty hard, and I remember watching a few games with him. But am I thinking about that right? Do you know who I'm you talking are, about here? Okay, I can't, Ryan. You need to go on if there's ever a G5 college football Jeopardy <laughs> edition type situation. It is. It is like you've you've got some good ones here. That is Justin McMillan. Yeah, there we he go. was an LSU transfer. I'm going to whisper this. He was the quarterback when they won like 62 to 28 against that was Tulsa. It. Yeah, that's what that I That was him. Okay. <laughs> uh, and his his Twitter handle, I don't know if it still is, but it was the honey sloth. There it is. Because yeah. people used to say he's like the honey badger, but he was slow is what people used to say. <laughs> so he decided to own that. So uh, huge kudos for the, the green wave history there, man. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I just, I, I knew I had it in my head that he, somebody, I'm pretty, I knew it was around his time that we got torched by you guys. And I couldn't remember if it was actually him or not. Uh, but yeah, there you go. It was. Uh, okay. So, so a little bit more on the run game. Talked about Ty J Spears already. And he is clearly like RB1 for you guys. Nine touchdowns on the year. Um, dominant in terms of like number of carries compared to everybody else in the running back room. Uh, so if you want to talk a little bit more about Spears, go for it. But I'm also interested in just who are the other, who are the other running backs, if, if any, that uh, Tulsa fans and Tulsa's defense should be uh, concerned about? You know, I would say transparently, Spears is where you're going to start with when you talk about the running game, right? He's averaging 4.9 yards per carry this year. He has nine touchdowns. He is the guy, I said this before, when a game is getting tight or you need to get that third and three to keep a drive going, he's your most reliable hand, right? And then behind him, when you talk about running threats, I mean, Pratt remains a, a running threat, right? He has the second most attempts in the team, Uh, with 72 carries this year. He's going to work in a lot of situations, whether to use, uh, you know, sometimes to use his feet to extend a play, but even more commonly just to have multiple options as part of what he's doing. And so, you know, he's somebody who is certainly competent and can try to get those yards. And we've seen them do that, right? Tulane is a team that is comfortable going for a fourth and one. Even if it is when you have a one score lead on the road at Kansas State, (laughs) Tulane went for it on a fourth and two or a fourth and one from their own 30. I mean, that was, that was, I love it as somebody who loves, you know, analytics in general, and especially in the realm of college football, I thought that commitment was pretty serious, but I think it was right for Tulane and Fritz to have that commitment of let's roll the dice here and just try to put this game on ice. Um, Behind him though, the other guy I would say would be uh, Celestine. Uh, And I think his thing, you know, you see him a little less frequently. He has about 50 carries. That's less than half of what we had for Spears, but he's certainly a guy who can come in and and make impact. So those are a lot of the guys that when I think about, you know, the big three of what we're seeing in the two lane run game, they jump out the most, but Spears is certainly kind of the star guy. And I think a big reason why Spears might be even described as an under the radar guy is that I believe two seasons ago, he was dominant. He was, he, you know, the, the time that he played, he was amazing, but he got injured relatively quickly. I think there was a game against UConn and it was maybe his last game that he had where, I mean, UConn couldn't stop anyone back then, but they really couldn't stop him. And so it's exciting to see him work his way back and be the player that I think we all knew that he could be, but now he has the opportunity of being healthy and really being the guy when it comes to the run game. Is he, is he more of like the small, quick, fast kind of guy, or is he bigger and going to, going to knock you over or kind of the combo? You know, it's, it's, it can be, it can be a combo, but I think he is, he is most effective when he is dynamic and when he can break into space, right? Mm. He just has that extra gear where he can turn on the jets and just dust the defense. And so, you know, I think that that has been a huge element is that he has that explosive playability and, you know, obviously you want a, a running back or any offensive playmaker to have that, but he, he really has it in spades and it's a difference maker. 
Yeah. Okay. Cool. That makes sense. Lines up with how I was feeling about him too. And I just want to say like, he's not having as good of a year. He's still averaging like five yards a carry for everyone listening. Like it was an ungodly seven and a half in 2020 <laughs> for those three games. <laughs> yeah. Like six and a half last year. So he's trending down, but not, not nearly enough for my taste. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, switching over to the receiving side of the ball. Uh, you mentioned some of them already, but looks extremely balanced over there across like seven different guys. I think I counted that have a, a pretty solid number of receptions on the year. Uh, you mentioned Deuce Watts already. Um, aside from maybe him, is there one name for Tulsa's DBs to really key on, or is it really, really as balanced as it comes off uh, on paper? I mean, it's, there's a lot of guys who can do damage. <laughs> yeah. that, that's, that is the reality, you know, and I'll mention a couple people who I think are really big factors and I don't want to underestimate. I mean, there are guys like DD McDougal, uh, Ty J Spears, who we just talked a lot about. He can catch. I mean, a lot of running backs are not known for having great hands. Spears can catch and he's converted important. You know, he had a huge touchdown this year in a key game. Uh, so he's a guy who Pratt can have faith in. Lawrence Keys, he's not a guy who's had a ton of receptions, but they've been impactful this year. He is a Notre Dame transfer. So there, there's a lot of guys in this team, but the big one that I would point out would be Jaquan Jackson. And Jaquan, I think, is a player who can make impact both because of what he can do uh, in, in terms of being a wide receiver, but he also just had the first punt return for a touchdown against Memphis that Tulane has had since, I believe, 2002. So the first nice. one in, in 20 years. And he actually had another, I believe, the week before, I want to say, against ECU uh, that was called back. And so on like a, a pretty ticky-tacky holding call type of situation. Right. So all I'm saying is he's a guy who can make you miss. Uh, but I think you're exactly right, Ryan, that Pratt is not one to say, okay, I'm going to target the same receiver. We're going to get him 15 receptions today. Like He's going to spread the ball out. And that's really the nature of what we see out of this offense. The other thing that scares me about your guys' uh, passing game and receiving game is the tight end game, which we it, it's always so surprising because like Tulsa has never leaned into tight ends on as like pass pass catchers. They've always been more uh, run stoppers and run helpers. Um, so I'm always I'm always impressed uh, when I when I see stuff like this. But Tyreek James looking like second on the team and receiving uh, touchdowns. I think it was four. Um, how big of an impact does he make for for that offense? He's great. Yeah. And I think that if there was a third name that I would have thrown out behind Watts and Jackson, Tyrick James is, is another one. And I think he hit the nail on the head. You know, the thing for Pratt is that we don't, we don't kick a lot of field goals, which is good because Tulane has not had a reliable kicking game in a while. <laughs> but another big piece of that is there's just a lot of competence, I think, in the red zone around executing. And a, and a huge piece of that, ty, guys like Tyrick James, right, who you have, you know, a, a big tight end who has great hands, right? And he's going to get it done. And he's somebody who Pratt can target in that situation. That is such a value add for uh, Tulane because while the green wave, they love to run the ball. I do think that's a key part of Fritz's DNA. You know, this is an opportunity to spread the field out a little bit and, and really challenge these defenses. And James is a guy who can do that. He's someone you need to defend in those situations. You know, he's the guy, he can do a curl or something like that. And he's just open and it's like, oh, okay, wow. That was an easy touchdown. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that's kind of what you want to see when you get to the red zone and you have him there. Awesome. Uh, okay. Let's flip over to the defensive side of the ball as we start to wrap this thing up. Um, you mentioned him already second year defensive coordinator, Chris Hampton. Uh, what kind of defensive scheme does he run? Is it always the same? Does he mix it up all the time? And uh, what are the strengths and weaknesses of that scheme? 
Oh, what a, what a, what a question. I mean, let me, let me, even before we talk kind of scheme wise, where Tulane is this year, I think the higher level piece of what Hampton has done as we look at this defense is that number one, the depth of it is so much higher than what we've seen out of any Tulane defense in the recent era. And Tulane's had some really good defenses. We've sent the most people to the NFL in terms of uh, the two sides of the ball for Tulane from the defense. We've had a number of cornerbacks get drafted. You know, it it has been a strength for Tulane during the Fritz era for sure. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest difference maker is that there really is not anyone that you can just like pick on, right? And that always felt like the biggest difference. And I think at the G5 level, it's a little more common where you might have a great defense generally or a pretty good defense. But then maybe it's like the linebacker unit and it's like, oh man, if we keep going after this guy, it's going to be pretty easy. We'll just run some slants. This will be the easy kind of seven yard pickup. We'll hit mm-hmm. them with that. Now second down is going to be pretty straightforward, you know, and staying, staying in front of the chains, right? That's not as much of an option this year. You know, Tulane, I think through the first seven weeks of the season, they had four, di- uh, you know, uh, four times, but three different players win the AEC defensive player of the week award. And there's just some real talent. I mean, I'd start with the linebackers. Yeah, Dorian Williams and Nick Anderson are absolutely top notch. These are two elite players, but the list really goes on and on. There's just a lot of really good talent on this side of the ball. Tulane was predicted to be, I think, number 115 uh, this year in SP plus for defense. Yeah. They are currently number 42, I believe. So it is like light years ahead of schedule. And you know, it's interesting because. Like I said, I think at the end of last season, we were seeing a lot of progression uh, from what Hampton was bringing out of this defense. But what we've started to see this year is just a real consistency, especially against some of the the better teams that we've had. The other thing that I'd say is a real factor is that like they're like really students of the game. Like I remember, I think this is Nick Anderson was talking about. Uh, he was talking about watching game film of Tune at Houston, and Anderson had this forced fumble that was a game changer. And he was talking about how when he was watching film, he noticed that every time Toon was always trying to stretch out to get that extra yard. And it gives you that split second where the ball control isn't there. And he knew he was going to exploit that. And I'm like, that is awesome. Like, (laughs) you know, they are really thinking about the game at a very high level right now and in a very detailed way. So the other thing I'd add is just like aside from the depth, I think Chris Hampton has brought a lot of discipline to this unit. and, And that's exciting to see. Yeah, and I was gonna I was gonna bring up uh, Dorian Williams and Nick Anderson. Man, you just look at their numbers on just like ESPN stats page. It just, they just jump off. <laughs> they just jump out of you. It's pretty crazy. Uh, just thinking about just personnel in general. Uh, just in in terms of like NFL guys on the team, are are those two both NFL caliber? I assume Spears is in the conversation there. Who else is looking at uh, NFL level of play in the next year or two? Yeah, I think those are all all folks who I, I think project into the NFL. Michael Pratt, I've been kind of following what his draft buzz looks like. He's a guy who he's had exposure. He's been doing the Manning Passing Academy stuff for, for oh, years at this yeah. point. Like he's a guy who has been around a lot of those quarterbacks. And I'm excited for him that he's putting together a season like this. I know uh, in, in New Orleans, we have a, a blogger who's been kind of doing these updates and she thinks that he's kind of looking at, at being a projectable draft pick, which would be great to see. Yep. Tulane hasn't had one in a while, uh, right? Because in the early 2000s, Tulane had uh, two first-round draft picks at quarterback. I think not a lot of people talk about. Uh, those, of course, being J.P. Losman and Patrick Ramsey. Uh, but since then, Tulane hasn't had a, a, a draft pick at quarterback. And so 
Uh, very interested seeing how Pratt closes out this season. Uh, but I think especially looking at Dorian Williams and, and Nick Anderson, those are two guys who just absolutely jump off the film. And so uh, I'm very hopeful for both that they'll get their shot at the next level for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Well, cool. That was about, that was about all I had. Is there anything we didn't ask about Tulane football that we should know? Wow. 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 Uh, you know, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, obviously I think, you know, I've been on this before last time. Uh, we talked about some of the fun aspects of, uh, we have a shared heritage of Rick Dixon, who former Tulane <laughs> athletic coordinator. Yeah. Uh, you know, the fun that, let me, let me ask you this guys. Uh, cause you guys are like, yeah, I think Montgomery is kind of like the Schrodinger's cat of, of college football <laughs> in that he's both on the hot seat and not on the hot seat. What's, what's his situation right now? I feel like, I mean, it's always, it's always a weird question to answer because we never know exactly what the contract looks like and how much it, how much it's for. Uh, so the latest we know is that he was extended late in the middle of the season last season. But I, as far as we could tell, it was like a two year extension. So, uh, I, I would say he's pretty, it's pretty warm for him. I think, uh, especially with how this year has gone, we are not looking super great, especially recently, um, big mix of injuries and things causing that, but yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, this is year year eight for him, and it's just kind of been, you know, there's been a high early, you know, his second year was the 10 and three year. And after that, it's been a, a stark fall down and a slow uh, but mediocre build upward, sort of, <laughs> with, with some dips in there, too. So I think, you know, it's people know what to expect from Montgomery at this point in time. I don't think anybody ha- anybody who has a strong opinion of him, it's not going to change. I think everybody knows who he is. I would, you know, correct me if you, if you think differently, Matt, but I would say if, if we don't make a bowl game this year, it feels like he's out. Yeah, I, I feel like especially now, I mean, looking at different sports, I would have said there's no way if we kept Frank Haith, um, it was like <laughs> Montgomery's never going to go. But with how that situation all ended up last year and just, I don't know, I th- think you nailed it kind of on the head. It was a sharp decline in a slide. A, and a slow climb up to just being mediocre, never knowing if you're going to win a game that you're expected to, <laughs> uh, but knowing that you'll play close in every game that you're expected to lose. Yeah. So. And I, and I think the only thing I'll add on to that was like it, and Matt kind of alluded to a little bit was the, the Frank Haith situation, which, you know, that, that felt like the same kind of thing, right? We were just an average team a lot of the time, sometimes bad, sometimes a little bit better than average. And, that was just like going on for eternity. And we were like, what is the, what, what, what is the plan here? And then everything changed when we hired, when the fire nation attacked, but mostly when we hired uh, Brad Carson as our, uh, as our new university president who then, uh, and, and also Rick Dixon came over. Right. And so big, big change in leadership happened over there. And I will tell you, I know, I know Tulane fans maybe think a little bit differently of, of the Rick Dixon era over there. Uh, but the, he definitely has the connection to Tulsa that I think resonates with a lot of the fans here. And so far, I think he's done a really, really good job. Same, same as the, the new president, Brad Carson, who is extremely engaged uh, in the Tulsa fan base and just on campus in general. So ever since those, those two guys came into play, um, that's when the Frank Haith situation changed. And, you know, I'm sure they're thinking similarly about, uh, about Montgomery if, if things don't go super well. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. And, and you guys are, what, two, two seasons removed from the conference championship year? Is that right? Yep. I mean, that gets you a lot of, I don't know, it's hard, right? Because it's, you look at the schedule coming in, you got number 19 Tulane, you've got at Memphis, which is a winnable game, but is definitely not easy. It, I guess it depends yep. on kind of the temperature of their team. They kind of mailed it in last year. You have USF at home. That looks very good. 
then at Houston. Yeah, I mean, three and one, if that's what you need to to get to a bowl, it's on the table. It's just that Navy loss is is wild to Brutal. me. That's Brutal. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I feel like this game is kind of, you have to watch it because if you look at basketball, what was the game that kind of spelled the, the end of Frank Hayes' career? It was the 34-point 34, 34 loss to Tulane. Oh, yeah, true. On the road on national TV where everybody was watching, you know, Hunter and how awesome of a coach he was. And so, you know, I, I don't know, could be very similar vibes, uh, this game. Well, I'll say this as my closing comment. I think the line right now is that maybe Tulane minus seven and a half. I think that's right. I think Tulane, I would give them the edge just based on the fact that I think Tulsa has a really nice offense this year. I think being outside the top 100 on defense, that's going to be the real question mark is what they can put together and, and, you know, especially early on, can Tulane come in and especially with the scripted stuff we talked about, set the tone and get those good drives early. But uh, I've I've seen the show before. It is really challenging for Tulane to win in Tulsa. And, you know, even when they think they're looking pretty good, I've seen Tulsa throw in a third string quarterback and, and end up <laughs> figuring out a way to win. So I'm expecting a battle. Uh, I'm keeping my eyes very close to this one because I think this is going to be, you know, every game in for Tulane is going to be challenging. There are no easy ones on the schedule. So uh, big week ahead for us. Yep, totally agree. Should be a fun one. It's an early kickoff, 11 o'clock Central Time. Uh, let me double check the TV channel, ESPNU, if you're not going to be there in Tulsa. So it should be fun. Uh, but again, JP, thanks for joining the show. Always awesome having you on. Appreciate you taking the time. I know you're a busy man. Uh, and I, I know you can't shout out uh, you know, yourself on Fear the Wave anymore, but is there anything else you want to you plug here at the end? Yeah, here, here, here's, here's my plug. Uh, for those listening, you know, keep doing it for these guys because I've been in their shoes before and it is a lot of work and it's a lot of fun too. But, you know, that was always the thing that meant the most to me when I was kind of hanging it up was just hearing from all the people who had interacted with Fear the Wave. And so uh, I could have never done it without people wanting to be part of that community and sharing the podcast and, and telling their friends who are fans. Because if you're a fan base like Tulsa or Tulane or whatever, you know, it's not a situation where just everyone who walks into Walmart picks out a t-shirt and that's now their team. Like you're doing it because it's a labor of love. So uh, I love what you guys do. Excited to be back. This is the only one of these I'm going to do this year. So this was a nice uh, little trip down memory lane for me, but thank you very much for having me. Very nice. You're welcome, of course. And thanks for the kind words. Uh, you know, it's, I feel the same way. It's, it's a, uh, well, first also very honored that, uh, this is the only one you're doing this season. Very cool. Um, but yeah, no, same it's, it's tough, you know, sometimes being the, the Walmart school where, where you've got two other schools in your state that are a little bit bigger and, and have some more name notoriety to them. Uh, you got to keep going somehow. So I appreciate the shout out and it's always fun to do for sure. All right. Thanks again, JP. We will talk to you later. Okay, and thanks again to JP Gooderham for joining the show. Like we said uh, at the top, always awesome catching up with him and what's going on with the two-lane green wave. Uh, no better source of information, in my opinion, uh, than JP and, and Fear the Wave in general. So really good to catch up. Uh, always fun. Let's move it along. Uh, let's get to some basketball preview. The last thing we've got on the docket for this episode, um, aside from, you know, we'll, we'll end things with some other sports, but this is the, the last main thing here. It is almost basketball season time. Uh, the basketball season starts. I should actually have this pulled up. Let me let me pull that up. First game, I'm pretty sure, is the 7th. Is that right? Yep. Next Monday against Oregon State for the men's. Oregon State on the road on Monday. Uh, I'm going to pull up the rest of the schedule. When's our first actual home game? It is versus Jackson State on Saturday, November 12th. 
Okay, so not far. All right. And is that I'm I'm feeling like I remember that might be the only home game in November and then we have a huge yes. gap and then we come back in October in December for, well, for the next home game. Yeah. Cuz I know we have that tournament in there. We only have two games listed. We have Loyola Chicago and Oklahoma State. Loyola Chicago neutral, Oklahoma State away. I imagine there'll be another game after Loyola Chicago. Um, depending on how that tournament goes. So yeah, 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 yeah. mostly neutral in a way. But yeah, our next home game after that is not until uh, December 3rd. Yeah, and look at that. It's ORU. So the first, uh, the, you know. Who? ORU? ORU, baby. Yeah. Yeah, but the first one after uh, Jackson State, uh, we get ORU at home to kick off the home schedule. So that's kind of fun. Uh, but yeah, let's get into some basketball preview. Let's start with men's. Uh, we'll we'll end off with women's here. Um, yeah, uh, were you saying something, Matt? I am just realizing this is... This is prime time Jackson State. This is. Unfortunately, we're playing their basketball team. (laughs) Or maybe that's fortunate. I bet their football team got some freaking ballers on. They got that five-star cornerback on there. I bet he can can probably hoop pretty well. Uh, Yes, Deion Sanders football, Jackson State. Unfortunately, not the team that we're playing. Uh, So men's basketball, it is, as we know, an entirely new world in all senses of the phrase here. Um, before we get into the preview, got to shout out the latest news in men's basketball land, which is the newest Tulsa men's basketball commit. And that is a big one for, for TU. Uh, six foot eight forward Jared Hall from Lebanon, Tennessee, committed yesterday, which was Halloween on Monday. And he is one, a three-star power forward, which on, on paper, yep, okay, we're, we're looking good so far. But then you look at some, I mean, he was a high three-star guy. Number one uh, or number 65 player nationally, number one player in the state of Tennessee had offers from Tennessee itself and also Florida, Memphis, Iona, SLU, Ole Miss, Vanderbilt, bunch more, right? So this was a highly coveted guy, best player in the state of Tennessee, which produces a lot of good basketball talent. This is a monstrous get uh, for Coach Conkle and the staff. I'm, if I'm, I might be forgetting uh, an earlier one or two, but. This, I think this is the first legitimate high school recruit that they've gotten since they got on campus. We pulled some Louisiana Tech people that had recruited to La Tech uh, earlier, and then they came over to Tulsa. We'll get to them as we start going through the newcomers this season. But if I'm remembering right, this is the first high school recruit that Conkle's got this year. Um, yeah, really good stuff. Moving on, let's let's get into it here. Um, ended the season last season, number 171 in Ken Palm. Frank Haith's last year, the lowest finish in Ken Palm since 2013 when we finished number 181. And uh, So not a great way to end the season. Obviously, changes were made uh, as they probably needed to be. And we also finished 10th in the league last year, just ahead of South Florida. We were 11-20 and 20 overall, 4-14 and 14 in the league last season. Um, so, changes happen. Looking at this season, some preseason stuff, we come out, right? We are... Starting the season at number 153 in Ken Palm, which is, uh, again, we ended the year number 171 in Ken Palm and lost our two arguably best players in Dry Horn and Darian Jackson, and yet are still projected to finish better uh, than we ended the year last year. So pretty interesting there. The Ken Palm record prediction projection is 11-16 and 16 and 6-12 six and 12 in the conference, although Ken Palm only has us favored to win three conference games, and that is at East Carolina, home versus USF, and then also home versus East Carolina later on. Um, so, I mean, it, it, yeah, they, they do have us going six and two out of conference. It's a very weak non-conference schedule in general. Um, Ken Palm has us going six and two there. So we'll see how it goes. I do think we'll do better than it. I guess it depends how you look at it. If you, how you look at it, if you think we're only going to go six and 12 in the league, 
yeah, maybe I could see that happening. If you take Ken Palm's like projected wins at only three, I think we're going to do better than that. So uh, I don't know. Lots of expectations for the year. We'll get to expectations at the end uh, of this little section here. But how do you feel, I guess, right now, Matt, coming in? Uh, and, you know, we're going to talk about the players we lost, the players we have coming in. But what are your initial thoughts on where we started in the Ken Palm rankings? And does that line up with how you how you feel about it? Uh, I feel ecstatic. About, um, <laughs> yeah. I think especially compared to football, it just feels like a totally different vibe than football season, because, doesn't does it not? Compared to football, and also compared to like you look back, and I'm like, this is not the type of team that I feel, and you know, I have absolutely nothing to judge this on other than my excitement and my disappointment with with the previous regime. Yeah, um, this is not the team that's going to lose to a team of Air Force freshmen, like on a buzzer beater kind of thing in the non conference schedule, and so oh, right off not. the bat. I am just more excited for these games. I'm excited to like how many years are you excited to play Oregon state, Jackson state, like central Michigan, Michigan, Mississippi Valley state, like not many years, but you know, like when you got a new team, you got a bunch of new players, new coach, new system, like all these games are all of a sudden super exciting. And I'm like, so now, as far as like what you were asking, actually asking me about, um, how do I feel about that 153 Ken Palm? How do I feel about the Ken Palm rankings? Um, I feel like that's one kind of surprised that we're 153 with a projected record that low. Um, seeing how we went like 11 yeah. and 20 last year, and we're way worse. But mm. I mean, Ken Palm doesn't care doesn't care about your record; cares about your efficiency and your mm. metrics and all that. Um, so I guess it must just be a Conkle weighted average or <laughs> yeah, something. Right. Um, yeah, no, I, I think it kind of makes sense. I feel like we'll get more wins than 11 personally. Um, I feel like, yes, the conference is strong. Um, overall, I think we are the number seven conference in Ken Palm, uh, just behind, you know, the yeah. obvious big players. Um, but it's, you take... Like we still have ECU. We still have like South Florida, who's probably comparable to us. Uh, SMU's around that. And so you look at that, those three teams, like those are the ones that we obviously have the easiest chance to, but we always play Houston. Well, mm-hmm. we always play like, we don't always play Wichita, but I like to think that we play Wichita state. well. <laughs> yeah. And so like, I don't know, this is, this is, I don't see us having a winning record in conference, but I could see us stealing a game, yeah. uh, just being a team that somebody sleeps on that we can kind of pull it off. And we only play Cincinnati once, which mm-hmm. is super nice. And I think we only play, um, oh, who is the other one? Tulane? No. Memphis? Memphis once, um, which helps because, I mean, those are two of the top teams in the conference. So. I think it's fair. I think I think 153 is actually optimistic for where we started last year and seeing how how many things are kind of new. And I'm not saying it's too optimistic. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we just kind of like ended the season about where we started, though. Yeah, no, I hear you. I, I think that makes total sense. And I also completely agree that it is way easy to be excited with just the amount of new, right? Every game you were like, you're looking at more than, you know, with, with the Frank Haith system, it had been there for so long. We knew more or less how it, how it was, how it played, right? What kind of stuff we did on defense, how it looked on offense. 
And eventually we'll get to that point with Eric Conkle too, albeit hopefully in a more positive light. But now we, we go into this season. I, you know, I've watched a little bit of Louisiana Tech games, but I don't know if he wants to do the same thing here. Probably not, uh, at least not this season, because we have no size on this team for the most part. We've got like two guys who are like bona fide centers, like Charles Chukwu and uh, sort of like Tim Dalger is, is a little bit on the big side. Maybe Brian Celebonge. Uh But we are a small team, very small. And so I don't know what kind of system he wants to play when you've got such small guys. He's talked about how we're going to try to get over the hump of, you know, the obvious downsides of being small, which is rebounding. And how do you get offensive rebounds and keep yourself in the games when you're totally outsized? And he's done a couple interviews like that. I'm so interested in how that actually looks on on the floor and how we attack and how fast we play, how hard we crash the boards to try to make up for those size disadvantages. So super interested. I am like you. I don't have, you know, huge expectations for the season this year. I do think there's some serious talent on this team. A lot of it is very young talent. Uh, but man, we have quite a foundation in place here, I think, uh, going forward. So, uh, let's get into some personnel stuff. Uh, just, we'll start with losses from last year. So, uh, obviously we lost players and coaches. We'll start with players. Uh, Curtis Haywood, he's gone. He transferred to the university of central Oklahoma, UCO. Gavin Elkamil is gone, transferred to Southeast Missouri. Josh early gone. Forgot about that. Uh, look that up today. Also transferred to Southeast, Southeast Missouri. So Gavin Elkamil and Josh early transferred to the same school. Uh, and then those are the three transfers out. And then we lost four guys to graduation. That was Ladavius Drain, Ray Udowu, Darian Jackson, and Jariah Horn. All gone uh, to graduation there. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven losses. <laughs> seven losses from last season. That is like a very considerable amount of roster turnover happening. Obviously, that's going to happen to some extent when you get the new coach. Um, but losing four guys to graduation is, is pretty severe as well. So uh, that is pretty, that is pretty wild there. Um, in terms of the coaching staff, they are literally all gone except for one person. And I'll get to him when we, uh, get to the newcomers, uh, for the new coaching staff, but the coaches that are gone, both Haith's, uh, Frank Haith, obviously, and his son, Corey Haith, who was, uh, uh I don't know if he was an, assi- actually an assistant or more like a grad assistant style guy. Um, but Corey Haith is gone. And then all the assistants, Kwanzaa Johnson, Shea Seals, Toby Lane, uh, Will Bartlett is gone. Skylar Sullivan is gone. Jim Platt is gone. So that is also, uh, obviously when you lose your head coach, you're going to lose the vast majority of the coaching staff, if not all of them. Um, turning to newcomers here, I talked about them a little bit already, uh, but we've got five newcomers coming in with Conkle in his first year. Those are two freshmen that came when Conkle came. Uh, they had already committed to Louisiana tech, but when Conkle switched uh, and moved over to Tulsa, they made the switch with him. And those are two guards, both from uh, the Houston area. One of them is from Katy, actually, but basically both from Houston. Those are Josiah McWright, a guard, and B.B. Knight, another guard, who's a real uh, three-point sharpshooter there. Uh, the other freshman newcomer is a center, Charles Chukwu. Um, and I think he had, he had I think, committed under Frank Haith and then decided to maintain that commitment even when Conkle was coming in. So got a, some size there, all, although, once again, very young guy uh, playing the big center position. The other two guys came in from Juco. Those are sophomore forward Bryant Celebonge and junior guard Brandon Betson, who, man, I'll tell you, everything, every time I listen to Eric Conkle, um, you know, he, he gets into personnel stuff and how things are going. Uh, one of the people he always mentions in the starting mix for these newcomers is Brandon Betson. So I would not be surprised at all if we see Betson right off the jump. He's already got some experience. Like I mentioned, he's a junior coming from Juco. He's got some experience and time under his belt. 
uh, apparently is a very electric player uh, in terms of the, in, at the guard spot and could maybe help out with the point guard there uh, along with Anthony Pritchard. So would not be surprised if we saw that, but there's your five. Josiah McWright, BB Knight, Charles Chukwu, all centers, or all centers, all freshmen. I wish they were all centers. We need some size. Uh, but all freshmen, uh, sophomore Brian Salabange and junior Brandon Betson. Um, in the coaching staff, obviously all new guys there. Uh, Eric Conkle, the head coach. You've got three assistants in Duffy Conroy, Desmond Hayman, and Yafet King. Pretty sure all three of those guys came from Louisiana Tech along with Conkle. Uh, and then some of the assistants to the assistants, more or less, doing recruiting and scouting and uh, player development, stuff like that. That is Josh Wolf, Alan Massey, and Jackson Patton. And then what I alluded to earlier, there is one holdover uh, from the Frank Haith era on the coaching staff, and that is David Dietz, who, if you remember, was the strength and conditioning guy uh, under Haith. So he maintained that position and is still that uh, under Eric Conkall, uh for this year, at least, and probably going forward, because I think he's pretty well-liked among the players and the administration. Interesting. I don't know if it's just like how the, they've adjusted the website or not, or if it's just a distinction between how Conkle sees the team or the coaching structure, but they have like coaching staff and support staff, where if you I look saw. at every other year, yeah. it's just coaching staff. Like I everybody that too. is kind of listed in one whole group. So like your support staff has your director of content creation and branding, your grad man- managers, and then your assistant AD uh, for athletic performance, which is where David Dietz uh, comes in. So right, interesting is just what I thought. Yeah, yeah, I thought I thought that was too. I noticed I was looking at it today, you know, getting ready for this, and I, I saw that as well. I went back to the twenty twenty one to twenty two roster and and saw that it wasn't there. So yeah, I don't know if that's a. Um, like a conscious decision on, on Conkle's part or somebody on that staff's part, or if it was just like, this is how the, the roster works for this year and we have to do it this way. Uh, it is interesting though. Uh, yeah. So you've got one, two, three assistant coaches when Duffy Conroy, Heyman, Desmond Heyman and Yafet King, and then Josh Wolf, director of basketball operations, Alan Massey, director of scouting, Jackson Patton, director of recruiting, and then uh, some support members like a grad assistant, uh, grad manager, assistant AD for athletic performance, which is David Dietz. And Simeon Phillips, who's the content creation and branding guy. So pretty cool. I remember, okay, so Simeon Phillips, I remember Conkle talking about wanting to hire somebody to do this, like branding, marketing, content creation style stuff, I assume for social media. And last I had looked, they hadn't hired this and I never saw an announcement for it. So there you go. Simeon Phillips is your guy. And uh, let's see, looks like he comes from the University of Hawaii, uh, where he was doing similar stuff over there. So pretty cool. Uh, Graduated college. Uh, this year, I guess, 22 graduate of Elon University, uh, but worked for Hawaii since, uh, I don't know when, probably not that long, <laughs> if he just graduated from just Elon. Says, yeah, it says he just yeah. interned there over the spr- in the spring, so. Yeah. yeah, very cool. So cool, yeah, so there's our, those are our uh, our lost people, the, the personnel we lost along with the five newcomers and all the new coaching staff. Um, the preseason expectations, uh, this is one, our last season, obviously, with Houston, Cincinnati, and Central Florida. So they will all be headed to the Big 12 after this year, just like they are with football. Um, looking at a couple of the polls, the AAC media poll has us 10th. Uh, there are, once again, 11 teams in the conference for basketball. So second to last, ahead of East Carolina in the media poll uh, this year. BustingBrackets.com also has us 10th ahead of East Carolina once again. Sports Illustrated, however, also has a poll. They have us 9th. Uh, ahead of South Florida and ECU. So not surprising. feel like that's 
you know, you got the new coach, you got a whole roster turnover there. I feel like it makes sense. Um, however, I do, you know, we'll get into expectations after this, but that's where that's where people are kind of thinking. Um, the only other thing to mention in terms of uh, preseason poll stuff, uh, not not even really a poll note here, but SMU and East Carolina are the only two other teams this year that have first year head coaches. SMU's uh, Tim Jankovic retired, you know, quote unquote, just like uh, Frank Eighth did at the end of the year last year. Uh, so they hired Rob Lanier and then East Carolina. Um, man, I'm blanking on who their head coach, what their head coach's name was uh, previously. Should have written that down, but can't remember who that was. But they hired Mike Schwartz, who I think was a big uh, Tennessee, like he had a lot of history with Tennessee and, and that staff. So those are the two new ones. Joe Dooley. Joe Dooley. Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so yeah, Joe Dooley out, Mike Schwartz in, and East Carolina um, perennially at the bottom of the AAC in basketball. So we'll see if Schwartz can uh, try to help them turn around here. But okay, let's get into the fun part, which is expectations here. Uh, we already talked about it a little bit, Matt, but so, you know, the polls have us finishing 10th or 9th uh, for the most part, but generally, generally second to last uh, right ahead of East Carolina. East Carolina is, is the bottom team in, in pretty much every poll I saw. South Florida is around there. We're around there. So other teams like that. But where do you think we finish in the conference this year? I know you mentioned, you know, your, your thoughts on the record and stuff like that, but um, – do you, do you think we finish, you know, bottom two, bottom three, or do you think we maybe finish closer to the middle of the pack or, or where are you at? So as much as I said, like, I think we can steal a couple wins. I think that still puts us in line for kind of the bottom half for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would be a good season if we finished eighth. I think that would probably be the best I would realistically see us being able to do is squeeze past, um, you know, not squeeze past ECU, but jump ahead of USF and SMU potentially like SMU is just, they are who they are, but with a first year coach similar to us, I think that's another one that we could potentially hop. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't really see us competing with the likes of, you know, Wichita state or UCF or, um, you know, like whoever Tulane that like, medium but strong side of the conference so i kind of think like eight would be our ceiling i don't see us finishing last Uh, we're just not as bad as ecu um but i also at the same time like south florida is kind of always on the rise but then not actually doing it so like (laughs) you know never really know for sure what's going to happen with them uh and smu just kind of beats us uh, historically. So, um, I kind of feel like eighth would be our best. Realistically, I would say nine or, mm, I don't know if realistically, I don't, I don't know if that's like more my expectation. I could see nine or 10, but leaning towards nine. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That's probably the smart way to think about it. (laughs) However, once again, I am uh, overly excited for basketball season, as happens almost every year. Although the last couple years of the Frank Eighth era, I was not quite as uh, quite as psyched as I was previous years. But um, yeah, no, I am. You know, the vibes feeling very positive uh, once again, and that is both compared to football season and how that's been so far, and also just the you know last year with Frank Haith and how demoralizing that entire basketball season was. So excited for the new the new era, the new regime taking place over there. Have really no expectations for the year in terms of like I don't expect us to do well. I mentioned that already. Um, but like you then you look at the the league this season and there is a serious drop off in my opinion after the top five, right? 
So I think, you know, Houston is the I, somehow not the unanimous number one pick. One person picked them to be then one uh, one person picked Memphis to finish first ahead of Houston, mm, which who that was. happens literally every year. Which is who? Do, who do you think that was? It some Memphis beat writer or something? Hundred percent was somebody just from Memphis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Penny sure. Hardaway's burner account. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt. It's actually Frank Haith voting for memphis is and oh that's a that's a i almost forgot to remember we talked about it uh, a few episodes ago but frank haith is on that memphis staff guys that is going to be a spicy matchup and we got them twice this year so uh playing against our old head coach as sitting on the bench it's going to be going to be tasty looking forward to that oh we memphis is the other team we only play once okay i thought you had listened listed the guys so it's cincinnati memphis and who was the other one we only play once uh those were the two that i had mentioned Oh, really? I thought you said a... I said UCF, but then I was like, nope, we, I see them twice. Oh, so. okay. Okay, well, yeah, there you go. So we, we only play Memphis once, but still, that'll be a, that'll be a very juicy matchup uh, whenever that once happens because we, yeah, get to go against, uh, we get to go against Frank Haith. Um, but, yeah, so I think, yeah, I, I got on a tangent there. Houston, the, the clear number one in the league, despite somebody thinking they're not, uh, but they got every other vote to finish first. They have a legitimate Final Four contender, a legitimate title contender this year, um, was listening to the Ion College Basketball podcast with Matt Norlander and uh, Gary Parrish, and they were saying this is possibly Houston's best roster of all time. That goes back to the five slamming jamma days in the 80s and all that stuff. So they are loaded once again this season, even more so than probably they were last year. Serious chance to go to their, I think it was second Final Four in three years or something, if I'm remembering that right. Uh, so obviously Houston, number one, no, no question about it there. Memphis, probably a, a pretty solid number two. They got a, a lot of good talent, a lot of old talent actually, um, this, this season. And that has not been their MO, uh, for every other Penny Hardaway season so far. They've been extremely young every year this season. They went heavy on experience in the transfer portal and pulled a bunch of experienced guys. They got Kendrick Davis coming over from SMU, uh, to lead up their point guard spot. So they will be talented. Um, Cincinnati is good. Wes Miller coming into his own over there. They've got some bigger, longer talent. Uh, Tulane is, I think, projected fourth in the league this year, which tells you how good of a job Ron Hunter's doing. Look at Tulane. Like all of a sudden they've got the, you know, preseason number four basketball team and they're the number one team in the football conference right now. It's just like that whole athletics program has really turned the corner in the last three or four years. So, uh, shouts to them, I suppose, but Tulane also talented. And then I think your dark horse here is Temple who, uh, is looking really good as well. Aaron McKee, I think it's like his third year there. Um, people think they've got a shot, you know, they're not going to beat Houston, but, uh, to contend at the top of the title or at the top of the conference, at least. Um, so, you know, though they all have serious talent, uh, and experienced coaching staffs for the most part, uh, among all of those teams. So they, I don't think we're breaking into the top five whatsoever. Uh, however, I, like I said, after that, I, th- I do think there's a, a pretty considerable drop. You've got UCF after them, um, they, you know, you could throw them maybe in the mix with those five, but I don't think so. Uh, UCF recently has been very average to bad. Um, for the last five seasons, they finished between 100th and 120th in Ken Palm. Uh, so I, you know, they're not a juggernaut there. They do have one really good player in CJ Walker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, that's now 175 to you if, if you're counting up. So look at that. Um, uh, CJ Walker that one of their, a forward for them is very good. He's actually an extremely good player, but outside of him, like they, they lost that dude, uh, Darius Perry or whatever his name was, the guy who just rained three as threes on us for three straight seasons. So he's finally gone. Um, I'm sure they'll be fine. I don't think Tulsa is a better team than UCF this year, but they are, they're the next one out of that top five. Then after that, I do actually think there's a chance that we could, you know, if everything goes perfectly, 
Tulsa could be better than these guys. And that is Wichita State, who lost effectively their entire roster for the second year in a row under Isaac Brown and are kind of a dumpster fire uh, administratively right now. They had a bunch, they lost all these guys last season because there was no NIL infrastructure set up. Uh, and there's a lot of big personalities on that Wichita State team, as there always are. A lot of them left because there was no NIL stuff. People weren't happy with how last season went under Isaac Brown. Whole roster leaves, right? So Isaac Brown, in his second full year as the head coach, got a lot of things to live up to. You know, people are unhappy with Boatwright, their AD over there as well. So a lot of drama. Could cause problems for the Shockers, uh, potentially. I'm sure they'll, you know, they pulled in like four or five transfers from, from all over the country. I'm sure they'll be okay. But a lot of uncertainty there. Um, another school that has a ton of uncertainty is SMU. Like we mentioned already, first year head coach, Rob Lanier, tons of question marks here, how he's going to do. They also lost a ton of their roster. Kendrick Davis leads for Memphis, all this stuff. So they're another one who knows how good they're going to be. Uh, and you know, they have generally been, you know, better than Tulsa in recent years, but this is a, this is a big question mark year for them. And then the, the only other two teams are the, are the two that we are most likely going to be better than, which are South Florida, who's been bad. Uh, for a very long time now, and I don't expect that to change this season. Still have the same head coach over there, Brian Gregory. Literally every time I try to think of uh, their their basketball coach, I always think of Jeff Scott. <laughs> so I, that's their football coach. But yeah, Brian Gregory over there, still there. Uh, still, you know, I, I don't see him turning the corner after like year five of being bad. Surprised he's still there, to be honest. But um, so they're 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 what they are. And then East Carolina is bad, and they also have a first year head coach. So I think we'll be, we'll be better than them. So if I'm thinking of ceiling. I initially was going to say six is the ceiling after Houston, Memphis, Cincy, Tulane, and Temple. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll put US, UCF in, the, in that group as well. So I'll say seventh in the conference is the ceiling. I think UCF is going to be better than us. I do like Johnny Donkins as a head coach. It sits for Florida. I'm sure he'll get things rolling. But I do think there's a chance that we could be better than Wichita State, SMU, South Florida, and East Carolina this year. They both have their own weird problems in different ways. And, yeah, we also have our weird problems with the whole new roster and, and coaching staff and everything. Um, and blame it on my Tulsa bias. I'm sure that's what it is, but I do think there's a chance that we finish seventh. Although realistically, I agree with you probably more like ninth. Cool. Uh, the only other thing I have on basketball for on the men's side is, uh, have you seen that they're, uh, the, the men's team is doing this cane, like the cane of the week thing. Is that on Twitter or yeah, for the most part, uh, maybe it's in like the press releases too. Oh man, if it's been recent, I've not been on Twitter okay, in the yeah. last like couple days. Yeah, no, it's all good. I'll, I'll break it down for you. So they've been doing it since, uh, I think they started it when mostly like practices started it in uh, early October. And it's a really cool idea, I think. I think it's I think it's really something fun and it'll be fun to watch throughout the year. So basically how it works is uh, based on how you do it practice. They, they tra- you got to listen to some of these Conkle interviews, Matt. They track, you would love it. They track everything, literally oh, every... Just- when yeah. he was telling us about the uh, the three point shooting thing and like that determines whether or not you get what yeah. color stoplight you have. Yes, like, so cool. I know, but it's like it, and every aspect of the game has something like that, right? And they they track uh, you know all the basic stuff like steals and assists and whatever, but they also do like what what are you know hockey assists? So like the pass that turns into an assist, the pass before the pass that results in the in the score. So they track those. They track offensive rebound percentage. They track everything and that's all like actually written down. They've got like a member on the staff that is doing that. And based on how you do in practice all week, uh, you, you earn points, uh, you know, if you're based on how those stats are going in your favor. And so they tally all those up at the end of the week and then they subtract any points 
if you were late to practice or you missed a class or, you know, stuff like that. Um, so as long as you do well and don't lose points, then you can be the cane of the week. And the, the benefit there is, you know, normal, the normal practice jerseys are reversible. So they're blue on one side and gold on the other. But if you're the cane of the week, you wear a white jersey. And so Conkle was talking, and so it's like a designation. You know, you're the guy. You're the guy that week. And everybody apparently on this team is trying like hell to compete and win and be that cane of the week, which is so cool. And Conkle uh, uh, was telling a story about it. And they did this at Louisiana Tech, too. He's been doing it for like eight years now. And it's always – the players always love it. It keeps, keeps the motivation level high at practice, and it's a fun thing. Um, at Louisiana Tech, they were – the reversibles were blue and red, uh, but their cane of the week jersey was gold, and they call it the gold standard, right? Uh, but here, like I said, it's blue and gold reversibles, but the cane of the week jersey is white. And so they're, now it's the platinum standard, which when he said, when he said that on the interview, everybody uh, got a kick out of that one. It's pretty cool. So uh, that's how it's been so far. They've had a different – You know, no one has kept cane of the week two weeks in a row. This is how it's gone. Week one, Tim Dalger. Week two, Nikita Konstantinovsky. Week three, Bryant Celebange. Week four, Tim Dalger times two. So there's your, he's the only one that's uh, done it twice so far this season. And then the most recent one, uh, Sterling Gaston Chapman uh, coming in, getting the most recent ones. He's got the crown or the, the platinum standard right now. Um, something, you know, since he won it this week reminded me. Uh, Conkle in an interview recently was just talking about, you know, everything about the team. It was just the, it was the, probably the, the TU media day, like press conference. He sat down and answered a bunch of, bunch of questions and, I don't even think somebody asked him a specific question about uh, Sterling Gaston Chapman, uh, but he started talking about him and he just mentioned how intensely he goes at the basket all the time. Right. And I'm sure that contributed him contributed to him winning the, the king of the week here. But uh, I think, you know, he's been kind of there on the sidelines, getting some decent playing time every now and then under Haith. Uh, but he was he was a big name recruit when he came. Like he had an offer from Wichita State, and he was from Wichita, and he picked us over them. And that was like three years ago. And, and we, we saw that intensity last year when he uh, got into some fights. Oh yeah, was that like uh, the SMU game or something? I'm, I feel like I'm remembering that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it? It was ECU. Was one of them, right? It was okay, like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I I do remember that uh, happening occasionally, though. Um, yeah, but at the same time, it's like you know you got to play with some, I, I you know, and basketball players play with different levels of aggressiveness, and it doesn't always translate into fighting or anything like that. Uh, but he is he's definitely an intense guy, and Conkle was just talking about how how intense he is getting to the basket, and how uh in, how aggressive it is, and how they think that that is going to make a big difference this year. So I think we might see a big season out of uh, Sterling Guest and Chapman as well. Uh, cool. So before we move to women's basketball, is, are there any players, uh, on this roster that you are specifically like really excited about this year or anything like that? I am just super interested in seeing what Sam Griffin turns into under a new offense. I feel like last year when he was the highs were incredibly high. And then there were games where you didn't know that he was on TU's roster. And <laughs> yeah. so, I just feel like he was poorly utilized in Haith's system and also poorly utilized in that we didn't have enough shooters. Um, and so, you know, once people started to figure it out, I think he got kind of got shut down in the second half way more than he had been prior. I mean, he obviously, he had some of those breakout games where like South Florida, he just went off and stuff in like those situations, but similar to how like Brendan Rochelle 
you know, had a really good first half his senior year and then kind of like tapered off as the, as the year went on. Yeah. And so I'm super curious to see how Griffin, who is, I mean, what is, would there be anybody you'd put up there as like a better shooter than him on this roster? Um, from what we've seen, not just, I guess, which is not, no, yeah, no, I think, I think he's going to be the best shooter on the roster, uh, bar none. Yeah, so I'm I'm just super curious to see what the change is and how he's utilized versus how he has been in the past. And on top of that, the same, you know, same reason is Keyshawn Embry Simpson. Like he's a guy that we were all super excited about when he transferred from Arkansas to come play for this Haith team. Um, and then you know we just didn't really get to see. We always were like, okay, it's you know him and Curtis Haywood were supposed to be our next two shooters. It was going to be them. It was going to be Jariah Horn, and then it was like Sam Griffin. Is like who's going to be number three? And then last year it was yeah. Horn, Griffin, and Drain were like our top three shooters. And uh, obviously, uh, Keyshawn didn't play. You know the second half of the season. Um, so I'm just kind of curious. How does that like? Are we going to see him kind of step up mm-hmm. and be that like other guy? As ter- in terms of just like our three point shooting, so those are two that I'm kind of keeping my eye off, keeping my eye on, and also, um, I, like Nikita, like he is our big guy with experience. I really liked. I feel like when he came out last year, there was just a ton of like energy and a ton of like we've had issues where big men don't have the best ball handling skills um, <laughs> yeah. when they've played for Tulsa. Um, and so I'm curious to see, like, I, I thought he was better than some that we've had in the past. And he's obviously not listed as a center. He's listed as a power forward, like 237, <laughs> uh, oh man, 237 pounds, six, what is he? Six, seven, six, 10, six, 10. Yeah. Okay. I'm way off. I don't know why it, you, it's all relative basketball, like <laughs> six, two, so six, seven seems tall, but yes. to a six, seven person. Um, yeah. So that's one like I'm just super excited to see kind of like has he mastered that because if he can ju- if he just goes if we get a big guy gets the ball and just pushes to the basket that's what I feel like we didn't get a lot of we just got a little we've seen a little too uh, timidness from that position kind of in the past and so I I really hope that he's aggressive and that he kind of just drives into the basket as soon as he gets the ball like dribble up instead yeah. of just kind of you know like. I don't know, holding on too long. So <laughs> yeah. Those are three that I think I'm super excited for. Um, but I mean, it's, it's honestly everybody. It's like Tim Dalger. I mean, I think last year I talked about him as being like my underdog player of the year. I don't know. Remember what titles we had uh, and to see that he's kind of been killing it in practice already this year. I mean, like I loved his energy. I feel like that's what he brought. So, I mean, I'm like, I'm excited for everybody on this team. Yeah, no, you nailed you nailed most of the guys I was going to bring up too. And my, the the point I was thinking was like, well, first let me let me bounce back to uh, Nikita. They I do get a little concerned seeing the big guys trying to dribble down the lane. I feel like that's a recipe for disaster. But I do want to see some some more aggressiveness there as well. Uh, so I totally I totally hear what you're saying, and especially in terms of like we definitely have seen some levels of timidity uh, among the big guys. So well, yeah, and like not even dribbling, but like when you get the ball in, you know, directly under the basket, go up. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Don't just dribble. <laughs> yeah. Do not, yeah. You don't no, need for sure. to dribble. Totally agree. Um, but then outside of him, you know, I'm looking at, uh, I think the biggest question mark in my mind that, that could potentially make a big difference on this team is Keyshawn Emery Simpson. You mentioned him. And another reason I think he makes a big 
could make a big difference is the youth on this team is considerable, right? And we're a very, very young team. We already talked about that a little bit. Tons of new faces. Keyshawn Emery Simpson is a senior. He might be the only senior on this roster. Let me He's scroll down. He's the listed as a senior. Yeah, so look at that. Uh, easily the most experienced on this team. And, you know, like you said, Matt, he, he came in from Arkansas. We saw him, you know, show some flashes of, of playing well, but nothing consistent ever, right? So looking for him to hopefully well, find some breakouts here. And then he missed, you know, half the season last year with the whole academic suspension and – all that stuff, and I don't know. I, I assume that's not an issue so far uh, going into this year, but you never know. Um, so he he's a big one for me. Yeah, and that's kind of like when you talk about most experienced. I think about it like how many years has he? He's got two and a half seasons, I guess, total. For Tulsa, he played well. That he's actually played. Like he had a year with Arkansas, then he sat out a year uh, because of the transfer, mm. and he played a full season with us, and then he played half of last year, right? Yeah. Okay. And so. I guess still that's the most experience because you look at, I think who else has played that much like Sam Griffin played a year at UT Arlington and then a year here. So yeah, yeah, most experienced, but even then like he doesn't have that full four years. So damn. Yeah. Yeah. So like he's, you know, and he's a shooter, like you mentioned, he's supposed to be. And so we, we're going to need that on this team. And he's also, he's a little bit of a bigger guard. He's got some weight to him and, and can move guys around. So I'm looking for him. I hope, uh, you know, I've long held that I think he's a really good player. And I think he can do a good job here. Um, hopefully he can, he can show that uh, to everybody else uh, this season. So he's one. Uh, and then the other guy I was going to mention that you mentioned as well was Tim Dalger, who I agree, man. I think he could be a real impact player. I don't know. You know, he is a junior this year. He had some, he, he played relatively well in the games he was in last season. Wasn't a game breaker by any sense of it, but was a pretty solid guy down there. Uh, six seven, so he brings a little bit of size with him, which we're obviously desperately in need of. So he's another one who's got some experience. He has been around the program. He's a big, talented guy. Uh, you know, initially came I think from a, from a junior college, and I am again looking for him uh, to make a big difference. But yeah, I, those those are the two kind of question mark guys. The guys I'm most excited about are kind of the usual suspects. Sam Griffin is going to ball out. I have no question in my mind, uh, especially on this team. He's going to be the leader of the team, uh, like. I think there's a big gap after him in terms of like who's the star on this team. It's Sam Griffin. And then it's everybody else. I would put second place probably at Anthony Pritchard. Who's going to be running the point like 99% of the time, uh, maybe like 85% of the time and Betson following up uh, after him and, and playing point guard when, when Pritchard is out, I'm sure we'll see him at the same time as well. Sometimes in there, but I think Pritchard is going to have a huge year. He looked really good at times last season. He was a freshman last year, got thrown into the fire kind of out of nowhere. Um, for a lot of that year and so i think he's uh he's potentially going to be a big one too and i think i'll just, I'll just give a final shout out to uh one of the other bigger guys who i think could make an impact and that's the juco transfer sophomore brian Celebange, uh 6'9 250 pounds so he's our second tallest guy um he yeah uh yeah just double checking nikita is 6'10 237 um bryant Celebange is 6'9 215 so we've got some size there we're just not deep uh, in the size positions. And we also don't have a ton of experience because this is Celebonga's first year playing division one, uh, college basketball. So those are the guys that I've got, uh, circled, um, to watch and I'm excited for it. And I mentioned Brandon Betson already being the guy that Conkle mentions, uh, very often in terms of like guys who could legitimately be starters or at least getting some serious minutes, uh, on the field or on the field, on the court, uh, in their first year with the program. So, very excited. I think it's going to be an awesome year, despite the record. It's just like every game is going to have something to watch and a new player to key in on and see how they do. And 
I'm sure we'll have ups and downs, no doubt, but I am really, really looking forward to it. Yeah. And, there, and I think I've talked about this in the past. There's something refreshing about it being a first year. Like, yeah, there are technically expectations, but there's also no expectations. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, you get years one and two to kind of like build your program forward. And year three is where you're like, okay, now you've been here. Like, this is where we want to see the consistent success, things like that. Like this year, I want to see good basketball. I want to see fun basketball. Like we're going to lose games. We're going to win games. I don't, I, I don't care that I'm not putting a lot of like mental anguish into it. Yeah. Like I was watching basketball for the last like six <laughs> yeah. years. Right. Yeah, man. No, I'm, I'm the same way. And like you said, you know, first two years kind of setting the foundation by year three, generally you're like, you know, hoping that things are kind of in place and he's off to a hot start. Look at these, the five newcomers. I'm excited about literally all of them. None of them are these kind of, you know, just coming over from their other school. And I don't think they're going to be very good. Josiah McWright and BB Knight were star high school players in Houston, right? A big city. So those are two big time guys that we pulled away from Louisiana Tech. Louisiana Tech won 20 games every year. Conkel was there 20 or more games every year he was there except for one right these are these are talented players louisiana tech was recruiting at a high level they never made the tournament uh just because you're a one big lead there in conference usa so you have to win the conference championship and he couldn't pull that off but those are talented players so those two coming in is huge we get the big guy who maybe maybe is the big guy of the future in charles chuck we've got a forward like second biggest guy on the team Celebange, like i mentioned then brandon metzen i think we're going to see an immediate impact from him so excited about that foundation and like you know year three with him all those guys will still be here, except for most likely Brandon Benson will be done. But the other four guys, they'll all still be here. That's an um, that's an experienced group that will have been here for several years by that point, and that is a bright future in my opinion. Sweet. All right, let's move on to women's basketball. Um, you talk about lack of experience to the complete opposite with women's basketball. Yeah, they do have seven newcomers, although extremely experienced uh, team because they re- also returned a ton uh, of talent on this roster, uh, which we will get to. Uh, so let's let's first cover the losses. One of them I totally forgot about. Yvette Mayberry, uh, the younger sister of Maya Mayberry, no longer on the team. She transferred to Kansas in the offseason. So she is gone. Uh, they will be playing apart from each other uh, this year, which is kind of weird. Maya talked about it for a while, but she's, you know, Happy that Yvette's doing her own thing, blazing her own trail. Going to Kansas, pretty awesome. So congrats to her, I suppose. But uh, no Yvette Mayberry on the team this year. The other two are just graduates, and that is Ellen Frankel's daughter and Rebecca Lasky. Uh, they both graduated. And Lasky, I think, uh, she set a couple records near the end of the year for, like, career records last season. One of them was for steals. Maybe rebounds was the other one. I can't remember. Um, but she is she is a huge loss, as is Yvette Mayberry. Um, not sure if Ellen Franklin's daughter really showed up on the stat sheet that much. Uh, can't remember really, but she was definitely not one of the, you know, top two or three or four, uh, from the team. So Lascai and Mayberry, definitely the biggest, the biggest losses going into this year. Uh, mentioned the newcomers. There are seven of them. Um, this is Angie Nelp's second year. So her and her staff don't count as newcomers anymore. Uh, the, there are two transfers and five freshmen. The transfers are junior guard Katia Galagos transferred from UTEP. She's also from El Paso. I saw, so transferred from her home city school, uh, to Tulsa, a junior forward and Caitlin Levings transferred from Arizona state, which is where Angie Nelp came from last year. Uh, so that, that's probably a, a tie and connection there. And then the other ones are all freshmen high school recruits. Those are freshman guard, Cam Matthews from Keller, Texas, a combo guard freshman Hadley Perryman from Tuttle, Oklahoma, the only Oklahoma Oklahoman in this group, um, or at least from there. Uh, 
a freshman forward, Chloe Williams from Los Angeles, California, which is pretty cool. A, another freshman guard, Caroline Lyles from Argyle, Texas. And finally, uh, another freshman guard, Are Young from Elk Grove, California. So seven newcomers, two transfers, five freshmen. And that does not include the host of very talented players that we returned from last season's uh, awesome year. And just as a refresher, last year uh, started off, I think it was 10-0, and 0, right, to start the year. And that was the best start in Tulsa women's basketball history, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, obviously, you get in a conference play, you start playing some some more experienced, more uh, more talented opponents. You're going to drop some here or there, but ended up in an awesome year going to the NIT. Maybe it was like the third round of the NIT where we ended up losing to Wyoming in like triple overtime. Absolutely wild game. And uh, just a amazing turnaround uh, from the regime that came before Nelp and staff. So very excited for year two. And looking forward to getting it started. The AAC media poll put us fourth, which has got to be the best media poll position preseason for women's basketball in many, 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 many years. Uh, we are – USF uh, was the the vast majority favorites with nine first-place votes. Houston uh, got two first-place votes and ended up in second. And then SMU rounding out the top three, and we are right after them. So – should be a big year. Uh, what do you think, Matt? Do you think that makes sense? Um, did you think we'd be higher potentially than fourth after the season we had last year? Or wh- what are you thinking? So I, yes. Well, honestly, yeah, I did. Because so South Florida makes a ton of sense. I mean, I think they were, they didn't win the conference last year. UCF did. UCF lost a ton, including their coach um, to Georgia. And so, uh, no expectation. Dark mode Matt is here. Um, <laughs> so UCF dropped off. Not surprising. USF though was easily, you know, up there with a one, two punch uh, of the Florida schools. And so not surprised at all. I think that's hundred percent Houston coming up. Uh, kind of surprised me. I didn't think they were like, that strong yeah. i mean they were a good team last year they beat us twice i remember um, they just like bodied us with size last season so yeah I wonder if- so the the first game was like oh our fir- i think it was our first it was the game right after that exciting memphis um one and we just we lost by like yeah 13 and it was just the height and then we lost by a point we should have won the the second you know the rematch at home and so kind of surprised by that and also by smu like i I mean, we did lose like 42 to 75 to them um, last year, but I I see that as like a fluky game, honestly, yeah. from like not really sure what was going on. And so I for for I'm happy with fourth. I'll let me just say that, but I honestly I think this is a top 3 team in the conference. I think that if we play as well as we did last year, and I think we're going to play even better than we did last year like we have a shot for a top three seed. I mean, you remember this is a team that we, again, we lost by a point to Houston. We barely lost to Wyoming in the second round of the NIT. Um, We lost by three points on the road to South Florida last year and had a legitimate shot to win that game. You look at that. We should have beat San Francisco to keep our like winning streak at 11, like with an undefeated non-conference. Like, I have similar expectations, which, you know, maybe is not fair because last year was obviously an incredible start to the seat to Angie Nelp's career at TU and as, um, you know, just as a first year head coach. So, you know, it's like maybe 
there should be some expectation for a slight, like maybe we don't get off to as hot of a start kind of thing. But as far as like where I see this team being, that's kind of how I see it. Cause our two best players are our, our three best players are back. Yeah. Um, you know, you still have Maddie Biddle, you still have Maya Mayberry and you still have Tamira Poindexter on top of that. You still have Delaney Crawford, who was an incredible, I mean, if it wasn't Tamira Poindexter, it was Delaney Crawford winning freshman of the year in the American <laughs> last year. And so we're bringing back a lot of like returning, um, volume in terms of minutes in terms of points. And so, yeah, I, I think we're under, uh, underrated in that sense, not by much, but still think it's true. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes sense. Uh, you mentioned the returners there. They got some preseason media recognition as well. To my point, Dexter was on the preseason all AAC first team, uh, the only Tulsa player on that on that list. Uh, but we had two on the second team, and those were Maddie Biddle and Maya Mayberry both. So wouldn't be surprised if we ended up at the end of the season with more than just the one. Uh, but right now, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty solid standing uh, with a, a first teamer and two second teamers for basketball. So pretty nice. Um, but no, I, I hear you, Matt. I, I think there's a possibility we finish better than fourth, but if anything is going to kill us, once again, it's going to be getting bodied, uh, in terms of size and physicality. We did try to address that a little bit, uh, in the off season. Uh, we now have a couple, uh, people with some size and those are all newcomers. <laughs> so, uh, one of them is Caitlin Levings, who was a junior transfer. So she can make an immediate impact. She's our tallest player. She is six, three forward from Arizona state. So, that is impact city right there. That was our biggest area of weakness last year. And all of a sudden we don't just have a newcomer who's a high school recruit. We have a newcomer with size who came from a power five program in Arizona state and is a junior. So six, three Caitlin Levings, watch out for her making a huge impact this year. I think that could totally make a difference. Um, but then everybody else that's got size is, uh, is a freshman, <laughs> like out of, out of high school, uh, Chloe Williams, another six, three person. She's, she's a freshman. Hadley Perryman mentioned her six, two freshman. So we've got some size now, uh, but it's going to take a year or two for them to settle into the program really and gain some college level experience. Caitlin Levings. I think that's the key, uh, coming into this year. Cause like I said, junior got experience from Arizona state got size. She can make a huge difference this year. And if we finish better than fourth, I bet she's a huge reason why. Cool. Um, yeah, I think that that pretty much wraps it up for women's basketball. I feel like we both feel like fourth makes some sense. We could see us going higher than that this year. Um, but I feel like, you know, Nelp in her second year with the program, you, you feel solid. You feel like, you know, who your players are even at the beginning of the year. Now, uh, conference schedule might be, or the, the, the entire schedule might be a little bit tougher than last year, but when we get into conference play, it's all even, right? And so I bet we could, uh, I bet we could finish a little bit higher than fourth. Although it'll be tough. It's all, you know, it's a good league. Uh, got good programs in there as usual. So we'll see how it goes. But I think we're on the same page, Matt, with how we think we're going to do. Yeah, I'm just looking through the coaches um, right now because I know there was some turnover as far as um, like who's gone. Like I you know Doug Brotherton. No, he's still there. Um, yep. I thought it was the same. No. So Dodie Dunson, who was an assistant coach, is no longer on it. They have a new assistant coach because uh, they promoted Michaela Burza. Oh, interesting. Okay. I did not remember there was a fourth one. All I remember from last year, or a third one, all I remember is Nelp, Means, and Brotherton. They're all still there, but there was somebody else, I guess. Yeah, Talby Justice. Okay. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah, Brother, I do Brother remember Tin that. Name. was coordinator of player development. He's actually he's also been promoted. So Sydney Means is actually the only assistant coach 
uh, still there. Oh, interesting. I did not know Brotherton wasn't an assistant. I see that now, though. I got the roster pulled up. Weird. I totally would have thought he was an assistant coach last year. Yeah, so just some a couple changes on that uh, on that side. But I think, I mean, it was Angie Nelp, and then I think Sydney Means was like the, I don't know if there's a pecking order for yeah. assistant coaches, but it seemed like it was it was her. So. Right. Yeah, agreed. And I think Talby Justice went to OSU. You know what? That You're right. That something like it was either OSU or OU somewhere in, in state. I remember. Yeah. Good call. Cool. Uh, anything else on women's basketball or are you good to move on? Um, I don't know if we said this at the beginning, but their season also starts on Monday, uh, November 7th. So their first two games are at home. They play Alcorn state next Monday, six 30. Um, and then they also later that week on Thursday play San Jose state before hitting the road at Arkansas. I don't know if Arkansas is good at basketball on the women's side like they are on the men's side. Um, My gut says yes, just because. Yeah. Um, And that's the the thing. With women's basketball, there is no Ken Palm, which sucks because it is so easy to, like, look up all this, (laughs) like, quick stats on men's basketball like that. But women's basketball, you were just left trying to, you know, figure it out yourself, which sucks because, like, and I – you know, I feel like I had the same issue, you know, before the last couple of years is I just didn't watch that much of women's basketball, but it's, it, I mean, it's exciting. Like yeah. the game, uh, it's, it's basketball. So like somebody, Mr. Ken Pomeroy, make it, <laughs> make it happen. Make it happen, man. That'd be awesome. I agree. It, especially last year. I know we talked about it during the season last season, but with how men's basketball was doing, it was definitely like non-jokingly more fun to go to women's basketball games. They were played faster. They seemed to have a better control of the game every game than the men's team did. There was the new, you know, the new coaching staff energy, the new player energy, all that stuff happened too. Uh, those were fun games for sure. And I'm going to miss going to as many of them this season as I did last year being not in Tulsa anymore, but they're absolutely fun games to go to and highly recommend, especially with how Nelp's team did last year and how I'm sure they're looking at this season. I think it's going to be a big year. So make it out to any women's basketball games if you've got the chance to, because I think they're going to have a great year. All right, uh, let's wrap it up here uh, with just a rundown on some of the other sports. Did you have any in particular, Matt, that you wanted to to cover here? Uh, I mean, just the big one, which I think <laughs> comes to no money surprise last yeah. Friday, uh, cross country, both the men and the women's team won the conference title again. Amazing. Uh, it is, I am checking now their fourth season in a row. With the sweep and our sixth overall sweep for since the women. joining the Americans. Oh, with the sweep. With the sweep. Yes, yes, yes. 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 The men have won every season since yeah. we've been <laughs> yeah. in. The women have won um, like f- four in a row. Yeah, four in a row. And I think like five total. Like there is, um, well, yeah, because if we've had sixth overall, they've won two more since. So I think they've won six total. Uh, obvi- yeah. Okay, I just logicked myself into that. The men have won every year. The women have won six. There you go. So um, to the surprise of nobody, you know, Tulsa hosted this. I don't know if we host it every year um, or not. It seems like I don't know if there's home field advantage or not in cross country. Mm -hmm. Um, But if there is, like we obviously dominate. And so I don't, this wasn't a surprise. Um, I believe, I don't know the overall like, winner 
in terms of like who got first was yeah uh we took top four or top three <laughs> yeah. Isaac Akers <laughs> yeah. was number one was all the three top three champion runners. Cormac Dalton was number two and he was like a second no he was half a second slower um and then you've got Michael Power who was the I believe Michael Power was the big finisher at the Wisconsin um whatever that one what, honeycomb invitational yeah um, like finished that. third here with a 1.1 second gap uh so all they essentially just like ran as a as a group and then Tulane kind of like ran 10 seconds <laughs> behind so and we had at the bottom of those of those standings of runners uh the freshman of the year uh, award winner Luke Lambert uh, placed as well at at the bottom of that list. It's nice. pretty sweet. Yeah. So then on the women's side, um, and again, just as a refresher for those who don't know, it is your top five finishers uh, determine how many points you get. And so getting one, two, three, very helpful. Um, yeah. And then we also had eight, so it's like right. we we're already starting pretty low. Yeah. So Chloe uh, Hershenow finished as the top racer for Tulsa and top racer on the women's side as well. Um, we didn't take one, two, three. We took one, three, four in this one. Um, Layla Repke and Kat Pessendorfer. Man, the women's names are harder <laughs> to for me to pronounce on the fly. So yeah, Tulsa uh, had a score of 37 on the women's side, which is very slow or very low. Sorry, not slow, very fast. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. No, man. Absolute dominance once again. Uh, you mentioned it already. The the force rate for the women and the ninth year in a row. Every year we've been in the American, we've won the league in cross country. And uh, somebody, uh, I think it was Brandon Almeida on t- on Twitter, pointed out that we've actually won thirteen straight conference championships going back to the conference USA days. So just absolutely insane uh, on the men's side. Uh, so that is that is extremely cool. And in addition to that, the men, the, we won both, uh, coach of the year awards for men's and women's, um, Taylor Gully, I guess is the men's cross country coach. It used to be Steve Gully. I, I thought, uh, they both won the award though. So Steve Taylor is, or Steve, I assume is Taylor's dad. Uh, Taylor Gully got the men's cross country coach of the award, coach of the year award. He's an assistant coach. Uh, Steve Gully, head coach, won the Women's Cross Country Coach of the Year Award. I don't know how they determine who wins which one because they both coach, as far as I know, for both of them. Uh, but that's how that's what that's how that one fleshed out. So we got both the awards there, which is again, you know, just as we should have uh, been dominant for many many years in a row now on both sides. So uh, they deserve to win it. Uh, it's just just crazy that looking at that stat, I mean, you see it every year, like the. I don't pay close attention to cross country. I know we're good all the time. And then you see the tweet from the American athletic conference saying that Tulsa is swept once again. And it's like, damn, we are still just an incredibly good. And it's always, it's always a very cool day. Yeah. So next up for the cross country team, uh, they've got the NCAA regionals on November 11th. That is hosted by Mizzou. So that is up in Columbia, Missouri. Nice. Um, So the way that works is I believe it's the top three teams qualify and it's either top three or top two um i'll double check but top two top x number of teams um automatically qualify for the the final uh which is the following week in Stillwater. and so you can think of this as the first couple rounds of the like championship i mean obviously you're not doing a single race versus another school 
um, it's all at once. And so strong chance that, you know, we finish at two, if not one. I mean, we have a very tough region. I've said that in the past, like, OK, State is incredible. Iowa State is generally pretty good. But I believe that we are the second best team behind Oklahoma State in the region this year. We're ranked like five or six in the country. Uh, so good shot, good shot that we get the auto qualify. And if we don't, it goes to the like top. The wild card is essentially the top times or the yeah, like top total times of those who finished like third, fourth, fifth. So it's kind of like that's how last year we made it as like we finished third in our region, but we ended up finishing like fourth nationally uh, in the final because <laughs> our region was just stacked. And so nice. we got the, yeah. um, you know, like the wild card esque berth. So uh, that'll be November 11th at Mizzou, followed by the NCAA championships on November 18th in Stillwater. So, I mean, if we're there, a uh, good chance that I'm just going to drive down, drive up to Stillwater for that. Cause I think that would be super fun. I don't know yeah. how you watch cross country, but I'll find out. Uh, I wonder if it's like I, the only experience I have with that is watching a triathlon. You're just like, uh, you're an Ironman. And so you're just like, you know, you chill in a spot and you wait for the people to run by <laughs> and then you cheer as they go by. I assume that's how it is with cross cross country as well. And don't get me wrong. It was fun. You can get some food out there. You can hang out, bring a chair, relax, enjoy it. Uh, so that's probably what it's like, but I don't, I don't really know. Yeah. Figure maybe just post up by the finish. Cause it's, I mean, compared to like a triathlon, you know, that's like a half day plus yeah. event. <laughs> yes. For Whereas sure. Cross country. This will be over in yeah, you know, 25 minutes. Right. Tops. Yeah. Very nice. Okay. Exciting. So yeah, I got the championships coming up. That'll be awesome. Uh, moving on to what is probably of the other sports playing right now, the second most successful team, which is men's soccer, who is dominant in their own right, although not quite as incredibly dominant as cross country has been, uh, men's soccer. They are nine and two and two overall right now, five and two and one in conference, uh, on a three game winning streak. Currently, they just beat a decent central Florida team, uh, last Wednesday, and we've got SMU on the road tomorrow, uh, Wednesday, as of recording time. And SMU, uh, middle of the road, pretty solid team in the American this year. The American, uh, as we've talked about in the past, very strong in soccer this season. Uh, so that's that's tomorrow. And then after that, we've got Commerce Championship time coming up uh, starting on Sunday the 6th. Uh, so less than a week from today, uh, Commerce Championship time gets going. So TU will obviously be there uh, participating. Unfortunately, women's soccer will not be their season is over which i missed uh when i was until i was preparing for this game uh women's soccer for the conference championship they take the top six teams to the conference championship tournament unfortunately tu women's soccer finished seventh so just missed out on playing for the conference championship tournament uh ended the season seven seven and three overall two and four with two ties in conference uh, ended the year, unfortunately, on a three-game losing streak, which probably moved them down a peg or two uh, in the hierarchy of the American, uh, which, which obviously, as, as I mentioned, uh, will make you not be able to go to the conference tournament. Which is just such a so. I, I hate that personally. That it's I, only the top six. Only the top six. Like yeah. basketball, everybody gets to go. I know like, it is really weird. I soccer. had to look up. Like I, I looked. I was on Tulsa Women's Soccer schedule earlier today, and it ended with the loss like two weeks ago and then there was nothing else. And I was like, what, what's happening? Where, where's the rest of the stuff? Where's the conference tournament? And I looked up like, you know, conference tournament, women's soccer, uh, you know, bracket or, or I can't remember what I searched, something like that. 
And yeah, then I saw the American has a, you know, a press release about who is invited and, and you know, how that works. And it was the top six teams. Really strange. I assume men's Who's soccer invited? is the same like, way. This is some, some kind of playoff committee. <laughs> yes. I imagine yeah. men's soccer will be last year. Like the last couple of years, it hasn't been because there's, we're like only six teams in. The oh yeah. Program. Good point. Um, yeah. Weird. Uh, yeah. Men's soccer, not in any jeopardy of, uh, of not making it. Yeah, currently. <laughs> well, I think they only have the one game left, so I think it's yeah, locked I'm up. I'm pretty sure it's impossible. But yeah. Um, yeah, so bummer on the women's side because I 100% thought they were going to make the, the tournament. Uh, yeah, the three straight losses hurts, especially the last loss being to SMU, who you yeah. look in the standings is the team directly <laughs> above you. Yeah, it sucks. And it's it like sucks. three points. Yeah. And so two of those points they could have had in that last. So, you, you know, that's a four-point swing. They yep. pull that one off, they're in you know, with 10 points because SMU's only got nine. Yeah. And so just a frustrating season finale. But, I mean, exciting that their postseason, um, like, status was in the air in, like, they controlled their destiny going into the last game of the season. Yeah. Like, you look back the last time that the women's soccer team, like, A, hasn't, like, finished 7-7-3. Seven, seven, and three. First time they haven't had a losing record since 2015. Oh, man. Like they, and they have, they had a 13, six and one record in 2015, but then they have just, they dropped off a cliff after that. Yeah. And so, you know, you look at it last year was uh, coach Ryan's first year, but he was technically still the interim right. six, nine and one, I believe. Um, and then you go this year, seven, seven, three, six, nine and two, sorry. Uh, last year yep. to seven, seven, three, like, and then you compare that to 2020, the last year, um, with our previous coach two and six. And so there's, there's obviously a trajectory going upwards with how women's soccer, you know, it's not quite as meteoric as NG Nelps has been, but it's in the right direction. Right. And I think that's like a, a good thing, a frustrating way for the season to end, but a strong, um, kind of like projection for going forward, at least in my opinion. Yeah, couldn't have said it any better. I think you nailed it. Uh, I agree. It fe- it does feel like things are on the up, uh, maybe a little bit slower up than than other teams, like you mentioned, but still looking looking pretty solid. Just barely missed out on the playoff or the playoff, the the conference championship tournament, and the playoff. Yeah, yeah, seriously. CFP um, over here. So next Decided. season, hopefully, we will uh, see him in there. Uh, but yeah, just to, just to follow up on the men's side. TU is actually the number one team right now, tied in conference. I actually, I'm not sure why. It must be an act- actual tie. Uh, we are, we have the same conference record as Florida international. Who's new this year from conference USA, but the overall record Florida international actually has a, Oh no, they've just played way more games. They have four losses compared to our two, but they have 10 wins compared to our nine. So I guess that equals out, uh, to Tulsa owning first place in the AAC in men's soccer. So despite, you know, we have got one more game left. If we lose that, we'll still be obviously, um, either we'll probably be in second at that point if Florida international wins, but no problem going to the conference championship tournament. I think we're ahead of them. Um, is it because of percentage or is it because we have the head to head tiebreaker? Oh, maybe that's what it is. I don't know. When did we, did we beat them? Yeah. So we did beat them. Um, so one of those must be makes sense. Yeah. Cool. Uh, and oh, once no, again, just, uh, just to, we lost. So, oh yeah, weird. Okay. Yeah. It must just be the overall or something with two fewer losses, maybe winning percentage. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and just a, just a rehash, uh, conference championship for the men starts on Sunday, November 6th. So get excited for that. Uh, and the last thing I think we've got is women's volleyball, who unfortunately is also on a downward trend in terms of their past three games. They are on a three-game losing streak. They are 10-13 and 13 overall this season, now 3-8 and eight in conference play after that three-game conference losing streak. Uh, they just lost three, three, three sets to none on the road to Houston, three sets to one at home to UCF, and three sets to none again uh, at home to South Florida. So tough sledding for women's volleyball currently um still you know three and eight in conference not great still got uh you know the games are played until november 25th so still plenty of matches to go to try to make up make up for some lost ground there but um i don't you know not a not a super positive season in terms of women's basketball we've got two games coming up uh this week ish and that is at temple on friday the fourth and at east carolina on sunday the sixth so hopefully we can try to regain some momentum there but this doesn't feel like a, a very solid uh, season for TU currently, although the bottom half of this um, conference is all like three and eight, three and nine. So it's a big mix there in the, in the middle to bottom. Uh, we got Cincinnati and Wichita state uh, a couple games ahead of us. So maybe we can bounce back, get up in the, in the upper half of the, of the league going forward. Uh, Temple and ECU are both in the bottom half of the league. So good chances to beat both of them this week. And then, like I said, still got a few matches before November 25th, which is the last one of the year uh, to make up some of that ground. Um, and I believe last but not least would be women's golf. Um, I was trying to remember. I was like, oh, I know they played. And it was like, well, it was two weeks ago. Why didn't we talk about it last week? Because uh, we didn't record. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, they competed in their final event for the fall, uh, the Jim West Invitational, finished sixth. So just missed their fourth top five finish of the fall season. Um, but if you look at the teams that they are just ahead of, kind of exciting because we beat Ohio State, we beat TCU, Oklahoma, Colorado, like Missouri. These are big programs. Yeah. And so, you know, I feel like punching above our weight class in terms of that. Uh, OSU ended up winning, but it was, I mean, it was close, 12 strokes, um, which I, I don't know if that, I guess that's a lot in golf, but <laughs> yeah. honestly don't know. Yeah. Um, but the other news is, kind of, I mean, a bummer. Uh, so you'll remember we've talked about the Dale McNamara uh, you uh, know, tournament yeah, that we call. held a couple weeks, like a month and a half ago. Uh, well, you know, Dale McNamara, legendary TU women's golf coach, just passed away last week. Um, so I believe, um, I think it was cancer. Yeah, um, looks like it. And so, you know, just just a sad moment for, for the team. Um, but you know, just a, a legendary figure. I mean, obviously there's a reason that they named the tournament after her. Yeah. So Yeah, so. and you look at her list of accomplishments here. I just pulled it up. Uh head coach of the women's golf program at TU for twenty six years. Uh led TU to four national titles, eighty one tournament victories over that time. And her second season here uh led Tulsa to a second place finish uh at the AIAW national championship. I don't know if that's different from your standard national championship but still um incredible list of achievements here it seems like she was really the one to kind of put tulsa women's golf on the map uh and that makes sense when you're here for 26 years and you win four titles <laughs> that's that's probably gonna do it um so yeah obviously a huge bummer uh to lose her to cancer i think she was did you say already 86 was that let me uh yes 86 yeah. um so big loss uh brad carson i saw put out a note about it um to you to you in general put out a note about it 
so there's plenty of uh, follow-up you can do if you want to read more about her and her accomplishments in the university, but um, obviously a, a bummer uh, to lose her, and after, especially after all the national prominence she brought to, to you over the years. Yeah, the video that they posted on the athletics website is really cool. Oh, nice. Uh, I haven't watched like, it yet. Okay. Yeah, just a tribute kind of like going through a lot of what you just said. I mean, Tulsa as a school has the only national titles that we have to our name are all in women's golf, and they're all because of Coach McNamara. <laughs> that is like, an amazing stat. Yeah. That is nice. the – like, yeah, she's the best coach we've had in any sport at this university. It's yeah. just kind of, that's what it is. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. Awesome. Uh, anything else, Matt, or, uh, good to call it. I think good to call on that it. happy note, but no, I know it, it was a good call out. We needed to bring it up. I, we had it on my notes and I totally skipped past it. Um, so yeah, definitely appreciate it. And I, I, am going to go watch that. Uh, the, you said it's on the athletics website or like on the university's website that they have uh, this just video. like, yeah, on the, I mean, I'm seeing it on TulsaHurricane.com. Okay, sweet. I will go watch that right after we're done here. Um, but yeah, let, let's call it. Uh, it's been a good long one. Uh, a bunch of different stuff. We got the two-lane preview in there with JP. We got the basketball season preview for men's and women's. We got a football recap in there. All kinds of stuff. So if you're still here, still listening, really appreciate you. Seriously, I know these are these can get long, uh, especially when we've got an interview on the docket like we did today and basketball season about to start. Um, so Appreciate it if you if you stuck around all uh, 2.5 hours or however long this ends up being, almost three probably. Um, make sure you are following the show wherever you do listen to your podcast. Hopefully this one actually shows up on Apple Podcasts in a reasonable amount of time this time. Um, while you're there, on Apple Podcasts specifically, drop a rating and review for us. That would really help. Uh, five-star review, and you can leave a comment if you want to about an actual written review. That, that would be awesome. Uh, if you want to support us, we do all this for free. That would be super appreciated. Uh, you can find a few different ways to do that on our website. You can go to thegoldenhurricast.com slash support to find those ways. And I think that's it. Finally, you can find us on Twitter at goldenhurricast. Uh, or if you want to send us an email, our email address is thegoldenhurricast at gmail.com. Thanks again, everybody, for listening, especially to this long version of the Hurricast. And we will talk to you next week. Stay golden. Stay golden.